Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Alright, looks like we are live and I want to welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie and I am your host and moderator for tonight's debate between John Crawford and Merritt or Crimson Air, as many of you may uh, know him as. Tonight we're debating John 15, but specifically the important question, what is the best understanding or the true exegesis of John 15? This is an important topic. I'm always pumped for these very specific uh, debates in the world of soteriology, where we can really dig deep on some of these more controversial uh, passages. John and Merritt have both uh, studied this topic intensely, and so I'm definitely uh, very excited, just like many in the audience, to see this debate. So John, Merritt, gentlemen, thank you so much for giving us your time for this debate. Why don't we do some brief intros, kind of break the ice a little bit uh, for anybody not familiar with uh, you gentlemen. Why don't we start with uh, Merritt? Let's start with you. Been a little while since you've been here. Uh, you have been here a couple times in the past. You always make for a great debate. So, Merritt, thanks again. And a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Donnie. Um, my name is Merritt. I go by the name uh, Crimson Air on YouTube. Uh, I don't run a channel or anything. I um, uh, stumbled on this community uh, about two years ago when I uh, was struggling in my faith of looking for uh, answers in the realm of science. And Donnie's ministry has been a big help in that regard. Uh, prior to that, I was a follower of, uh, and still am, a follower of uh, Ken Hovind's work. Uh, a lot of great stuff to help you help strengthen your faith. And um, through that process, I was caught up in a debate that was happening at that time pertaining to soteriology, whether or not you can lose your salvation. And from there, I learned uh, so much deal more about it that it solidified my position to where it is now. And I'm thankful for Reverend John Crawford for being here tonight, willing to debate this. And thanks again to Donnie for hosting it. And thank you most of all to the audience members for being here and watch this. Uh, I hope that uh, you guys will be edified by uh, our exchange tonight. And uh, if uh, there are any questions or concerns, please, by all means, uh, uh, send them through. Uh, uh, let, let Donnie know. He'll um, relay them to us. So thanks again for being here. My pleasure, Merritt. I appreciate that introduction. Uh, since you don't specifically have a channel, what I uh, do in the description box is I typically put people, our guest channels there so our audience can uh, see more from them. Merritt, I've got a couple of your uh, past debates, or I should, um, for people to check out. And so Merritt, thanks again for the intro. Thank you for being here. John Crawford, good to have you back as well. You've been here a few times before couple and times. you also always make for an epic debate, which is why tonight's going to be an epic showdown. So, John, over to you. How have you been? A little I've bit been about great. yourself. I've been doing great, yourself. yeah. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is Point of Defense. It's an apologetics channel 
where I deal with refuting false doctrines and defending the faith and giving historical, uh, defending historical Christianity, giving evidences for uh, proofs of Christianity like the resurrection. I also have some prophecy about the rapture, uh, a lot of free grace uh, teaching on there as well, because I subscribe to the free grace theology. Uh, subscribe for about three years, a little over three years now. And I used to subscribe to, to Lordship, but then I began studying more and realized how wrong that was. And so now I'm just I'm with free grace and I support uh, the free grace message that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, free grace has the gift of everlasting life from here and here on out that it cannot be lost. And so uh, I'm excited about sharing uh, the truth of grace tonight. And this passage here, by the way, is one that changed my life. I want to mention that as a way of just application. Uh, when I was back in Bible college, back in, I guess it's been this little while ago, uh, back in uh, the late 90s when I first started uh, in ministry, uh, John 15 really came alive to me because I never really understood what it meant to live the Christian life. In John 15, he gives us the keys to living holy, righteous, pure, walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But I never really understood that until then at that moment, until God really opened that up to me and uh, on a practical level, and I began to live in more of a powerful spiritual way when I understood what it meant to really abide in Christ and that it's Him that produces the fruit through me when I abide in Him. Uh, it's not a self-work effort. It's not something I have to work up or do myself. So, uh, so I discovered that, what it really meant, and it just it totally transformed my life forever. So this is probably my favorite passage in all the Bible. Well, I appreciate that, uh, John. Very good. Very good intros from the both of you. Uh, again, to the audience, if you want to see more from our guests tonight, Merritt and John Crawford, please do check the description box. So for those that love a good old debate on soteriology, this is the first of three in the next uh, four days. And so, of course, tonight, John Crawford and Merritt, what is the proper understanding of John 15? Tomorrow being Saturday night, Saturday night soteriology showdown. We've got Travis Thomas and Charles Jennings, Lordship Salvation versus Free Grace Theology. What is true biblical salvation? And then on Monday, we've got another epic soteriology showdown between Turretin Fan and Eli Haytov. So three, I would say, must-watch uh, debates in, in four days on the greater topic of soteriology. And each guest in these debates uh, are well-studied on, on this specific topic. So lots of fun. Now, with that, I want to go over the format. For tonight. So we are going to be having 15-minute opening statements, starting with merit, followed by an eight-minute uninterrupted rebuttal, and then we're going to have a discussion portion. So rather than, you know, being really strict uh, cross-exam, it's going to be more of a free-flowing discussion where the debaters for tonight can take that time to discuss the topic for tonight. Then we'll have a five-minute concluding statement where uh, these gentlemen can wrap up their thoughts and points. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have about a 25-minute Q&A. And so please, uh, if you have a question for the debaters, just make sure you're tagging me. Tag me either at Donnie or at Standing for Truth, and that way I won't miss your questions. So in order to set the foundation for tonight's important debate, I am going to uh, start us off by reading 
the first six verses of John 15. And so here we go. John 15, starting in verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. Verse 5. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So a controversial passage, John Crawford holds to the free grace theology position. And Merritt, as he iterated earlier, uh, holds to the conditional security position. So, gentlemen, we're going to get right into this. I'm looking forward to this debate. We got 15-minute opening statements for an exegesis of these uh, verses here. So, Merritt, whenever you're ready, my good man, the floor is yours. Alrighty, thank you. And I will be sharing a screen. Okay, uh, just let me know when you when that appears. You're good to go. The slides okay. are up. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here again. Uh, to begin, um, I am a former uh, free gracer, uh, and I am now a uh, lordship salvationist conditionalist. And uh, the controversial uh, passage from from John 15 uh, pertains to, of course, uh, the, uh, the the branches uh, abiding in the vine, and what does it mean for them to be uh, withered and burned? So uh, here to start to start off, I'd like to point out that um, Jesus starts off in this parable by saying that you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you, and from that I uh, discern that he is declaring to them that they are justified. In Romans 10, it says that, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, and that's the gospel message. And also in the uh, Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, it reads that um, uh, that uh, uh, the father speaking about his uh, about the Messiah, his son, that uh, by his knowledge shall many righteous shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And so it's the uh, uh, conveying of the gospel message that uh, that Jesus did uh, to the disciples and they received it and they're saved. And then he goes on to say that uh, he instructs them to abide in him and also that the branch uh, cannot bear fruit by itself, except that it, that they abide in him. And he says that he is the vine and they are the branches. And without him, we can do nothing now. Uh, Jesus later says that it is through the fruit that a Christian produces in their walk of sanctification, uh, discipleship, that gives glory to the Father. And he uh, explains that he desires it, his Father desires it, and Jesus expects it from us. In verse 16, he says that uh, 
I, uh, I have, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should re remain. And uh, in verse uh, two of John 15, Jesus says that the branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away. So this will be the, the, the point of contention in this debate. What does it mean for it to be taken away? Uh, well, he says here that every branch that beareth fruit, he purges, uh, purges it that they may bring forth more fruit. It's clear to me that this means uh, chastening, uh, pur purification by any means to be purified and grow in the faith so that you can produce more fruit. And um, John and I will be parsing out the, the different kinds of uh, uh, the, the, the occurrence of the word fire and burning. Now, here are just a few verses on the screen in which it's clear uh, in the portions that I've under underlined uh, that the fire, the fire or burning that it's talking about is not eternal judgment, uh, s uh, shall be saved, yet so is by fire, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and glory, uh, shall he coals of fire, not fire itself, from one's head, gold tried in fire, that thou mayest be rich, I rebuke and chasten, repent. Uh, it's very clear. Now, on the other hand, uh, there are occurrences of fire that, uh, to me, again, is very clear that it is talking about eternal judgment. Uh, for example, uh, the in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that, uh, oh, no, my apologies. I jumped ahead. Uh, th these are just more occurrences of uh, the same where it talks about chastening. Uh, now, chastening where this where the scripture is clear that it's talking about about chastening it always leaves with a positive note it tells you what the purpose of it is and here what i've outlined uh is it tells you exactly that chastened of the lord that we should not be condemned with the world patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure uh you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of god for which ye also suffer blessed is a man that endures temptation for when he's tried he shall receive a crown of life so it's pretty clear when it's talking about um chastening as opposed to eternal judgment, which I feel the free grace position has to conflate in order to water down the, uh, the, the, the weight of the warning passages. Now, in, uh, ch in chapter 12 of Hebrews, which we are all uh, familiar with, and I, let me, I apologize in advance for the small uh, font, um, uh, but um, uh, in short, it talks about chastening how uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, it goes as far as to say that not only is it for your own benefit, but that you can also fall away in the process. And uh, where it says that is in verse 15 of chapter 12, uh, where it reads, looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness brings up, uh, spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The issue with trying to make this into uh, something that is not salvific is uh, that you have the word grace there, which I've outlined. And in the Strong's Concordance, it's uh, entry number 5485, uh, Charitos. Uh, and it's, it's grace. Now, in all of the New Testament that I've been able to find, this word has only been associated with salvation in all its occurrences when it talks about uh, anything uh, soteriological. And zero occurrences does it is it ever coupled with anything pertaining to chastening or, or divine discipline, anything like that? 
And so it, it talks about how Esau had forfeited his uh, birthright, but then he sought after it, that he could never find it again. And then it closes off by saying that uh, the uh, he uh, it, it, uh, Paul continues on with the uh, example of how uh, those in the old covenant refused the prophets, those who refused the unsaved perished in their sin. And uh, coupled with starting from verse 28 to 26, 29, uh, yet once more, I shake not, shake not only the earth, but also the heaven, referring to the, uh, uh, to, to the second coming. Uh, and, and also after that, uh, shortly after the white, great white throne judgment, uh, uh, let us have grace again in verse 28 exact same word 5485 whereby we may serve god acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our god is a consuming fire so by simply uh consigning uh, by by simply uh relegating the uh the warning of the burning in john 15 which i'll go into next about why it is salvific as being mere chastening you're merely kicking down the can further down the road because it, the scripture clearly indicates that one can fall away even through the process of chastening. So, um, so uh, j just quickly, uh, why is purification necessary? Well, uh, scripture shows that it's uh, required because it explains that it purifies us in a way that um, solidifies us to the point where we can never fall away throughout all of eternity afterwards. In Daniel 12, uh, per, uh, pertaining to the, um, uh, to, to the to judgment day, uh, it says that many shall be, uh, I'm sorry, the, the 70th week of Daniel, uh, in which the, the, the trouble of Jacob will, will occur within that seven year period, many shall be purif purified and made white and tried. Uh, it, uh, we also have the example of Abraham who was justified by works in other words, that his fruit, his faith, I'm sorry, his faith was uh, made perfect uh, upon that point of uh, being purified to the point where he was willing to offer his his uh, son to God. And uh, we know that he, I, I believe he could have apostatized, but he uh, was purified to the point where he was uh, reconciled com completely. And at that point, he can could not ever, you can't ever fall away after that. And we know from uh, Genesis uh, chapter 22, verse 17, that it was because of his overcoming that hour of temptation that God had uh, fulfilled his promise uh, to Abraham, which was uh, given much earlier, saying that I will multiply thy seed as stars of heaven and as a sand which is upon the seashore. Uh, and uh, thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Uh, and then it, uh, so, so I, I see that as being uh, conditional, uh, very clear. And in Revelation chapter uh, uh, three, uh, it, uh, God touches on the issue of uh, being purified uh, to the uh, of of uh, keeping yourself pure in your walk of repentance, uh, saying that because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Now, uh, the burning of the branches. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. Men gather them and cast them in the fire and they are burned. 
Now, the reason why I see this as being salvific is because Jesus gives a tautology, which is uh, a retelling of the same theme over and over again, using different parables and examples. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, uh, the, uh, uh, John the Baptist says, uh, But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fan is in, his, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's eternal fire, uh, obviously eternal judgment. You shall know them by their fruits. Uh, do, uh, I'm sorry, in, uh, in, start, in chapter 7, uh, Jesus says you shall know them by their fruits. Uh, basically, a, a, a bad tree cannot produce uh, good fruit and a good fruit cannot produce uh, uh, evil fruit. And uh, Jesus goes on to say that every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down, cut down, and cast into the fire. Uh, when a when a, a plant or a tree is cut down and put into the fire, what that conveys is destruction, which uh, is obviously why we should take this as meaning eternal judgment because uh, it conveys con destruction and not something that is improved which i uh, said previously you know uh, gold tried in fire uh, uh being saved by fire you know things of, of that nature it's nothing like that at all and then later jesus uh in a f physical enactment of uh conveying this message is in uh, Matthew chapter 21, verse 19. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came upon it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only and said unto it, let no fruit grow on these, grow on thee, grow on you henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Uh, I take that as destruction and I don't see how you can go about not taking that as destruction. Now, uh, further uh, relevant to John 15, obviously, is uh, in uh, is um, in, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, where he says that the servant, uh, the, the evil servant, who um, who is um, thinks that his master won't come back, he starts to uh, he, he he starts to uh, uh, get drunk and uh, lose composure. Jesus says that when he returns. At an, at an hour that he doesn't expect, he will cut him asunder, which means cut to cut in pieces and appoint, appoint him, his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, um, the Greek is uh, very specific in, a, in the way that it conveys a message. Uh, I'm not a Greek learner, but uh, I have come to appreciate this level of specific, specificity that the Greek language has. In the way that... Um, these conditional uh, occurrences of the word if, but uh, these are the uh, these are the subjunctive mood, which indicates the possibility of a proposition or future outcome in the face of uncertainty, which means to say that it's not determined that that individual must uh, must show a certain kind of behavior. Where in the case of the evil servant, it wasn't he wasn't necessarily. Uh, determined to uh, commit that evil act. But here Jesus says that it's because he did that, that uh, he is now being rejected. And um, uh, as we, uh, as I had just shown, Jesus says that a good tree cannot produce evil fruit, 
and an evil, uh, an evil tree cannot produce good fruit. So because Jesus is expecting them to perform these good works, uh, the fruits of righteousness of the spirit, it therefore follows that they are regenerate and are capable of it rather than not. Uh, now, in Luke chapter 12, verse 45, uh, we have the same cutting down, uh, cut him asunder in verse 46 of chapter 12 of Luke and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Here, the, 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 the wording is uh, very slightly. 30 in that, seconds. Thank you. Uh, in that the, uh, the ones who are hypocrites can't be seen as um as christians who are simply backslidden and that they'll be uh fixed along the way through chastening but that uh they have um manifested to the to the to the degree where jesus now considers them worthy of the same punishment as unbelievers so the weeping of gnashing of teeth uh combined with uh the later clarification of it being uh, cast in a furnace of fire, which, as we, have, uh, as I pointed out, is uh, eternal fire, is uh, is judgment. And so, thank you for that. I'll end it here. Merritt, <clears throat> thank you very much for that 15-minute opening statement. Uh, to the audience, I do want to let them know that I am all caught up on questions. So, excellent questions coming in from the audience. So, John, John Crawford, we're going to hand it over to you now for a 15-minute opening statement. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. All right, thank you, Donnie. Thank you for that, Merit. Uh, I have some slides here I want to show as well. Anytime you do a good exegesis, <clears throat> you have to understand the background of the particular book uh, that you're getting the passage from. There's a broader context, and there's an immediate context. Context, 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 and the greatest of these is context, is what one of my former uh, Greek teachers used to say. So when we're talking about <clears throat> this passage here in John, I want to deal specifically with that. I don't want to jump from this verse to that verse to that verse. I want to deal specifically with this text. So we're talking about John 15, verses 1 through 6. We're not talking about uh, 50, 60 other verses uh, that was already had been mentioned. Now, I'll be glad to debate each verse in an exegetical manner, maybe on some other shows after this. But we're talking about uh, John 15. So the background on the Gospel of John, you have to know the author, of course, is the Apostle John, uh, the date it was written, which is A.D. 55 to 95. That's what uh, most scholars hold to. Uh, you have to know the purpose of it, and John's purpose statement was told to us in John 20, 31. Uh, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you have life in his name. Uh, so it's to communicate Christ through his miracles and teachings so people first believe Jesus was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God, and second, to have eternal life. And we look at the style of the Gospel of John. It's climatic. It uh, has suspense. It seems to build. Uh, it's selective. It's narrative. It's uh, uh, very precise as well. And, of course, the Gospel of John was, was uh, written uh, when he was in Ephesus in Asia Minor. So that's just a little bit of background there for you. Uh, and I'll get into some other passages here that, that briefly mentioned, if we have time to do that, possibly. But now what prompted Jesus to use this analogy of the vine and branches and fruit? Obviously, he wasn't talking about literal branches and fruit. Uh, he was using allegory. He was speaking figuratively to, to compare that to spiritual truths. But several suggestions have been given. Here's a few of them. Uh, the fruit of the vine was in the cup that was used in the Passover meal. Uh, Jesus could have seen the vines growing on the walls of the city, which prompted him to 
use this analogy. Uh, he could have very well seen the uh, fires burning in the vineyards. Uh, the dead vines were trimmed during the winter and burned during the cold spring nights. Two different things going on in verses 2 uh, and 6. Now, the immediate context text is this. The central theme and paramount truth set forth in this text is not salvation from sin. It is not about how to be saved, how to stay saved, how to keep from losing salvation or losing salvation. It's about fruit bearing because the the uh, the progression here is fruit, much fruit, more fruit. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about discipleship, which is completely separate uh, from salvation. And we know the believer is completely secure if you just look at several passages throughout the Gospel of John. The only book, the only epistle written to the world to teach people and to tell people how to have everlasting life. John 1, 12 through 13, John 3, 15, 16, 17, 18, 36, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, and chapter 5, verse 24, chapter 6, verse 27, uh, verses 35, 37, and 40 and following. All through the Gospel of John plainly declare eternal security. Now, the debate's not on eternal security, although we obviously have to touch on it. We can have a separate whole debate just on that. The central idea of this passage is fruit bearing and the conditions for bearing that fruit. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't even command that we bear fruit. He commands that we abide. And by the way, fruit bearing and good works and all that are not automatic or else he would not have to command us to do it. Now, it's interesting, the word fruit here occurs eight times in this chapter, and um Christ is clearly speaking of fellowship. He's not speaking of a loss of salvation, or he's not speaking of uh, the apostles or a danger of, of, of hell, because he's talking to the 11 apostles. Judas had just left earlier. He's talking to them, and this uh, this actually uh, is, is applying to them particularly. The application can be to us, but he was talking to the apostles and about uh, the apostles. Uh, also mentioned here, uh, Dr. Bob Wilkin points this out about the, the immediate context. When Jesus gave the analogy of the vine and branches, he based it on this, the cultural practice of his day, which was to clean up only the fruit-bearing branches and tidy up the rows during the early spring growth following blooming. He continues, severe pruning and removal of branches did not occur until the grapes were harvested and dormancy was being induced. Since Jesus was speaking in the spring, it's more natural to see his words in John 15, 2, as referring to the spring practice. And verse 6 looks at the fall uh, post-harvest uh, pruning. Now, there's different views on this uh, text, of course. Uh, some teach this passage is addressing believers and unbelievers together. I've already pointed out he's talking to the apostles who were believers. Uh, it's, it's clear that he was addressing them, the disciples. Uh, this passage has also been interpreted as a believer can lose his salvation, which is utterly demonstrably false. Uh, and also it's been interpreted as false believers that were never really saved. Uh, and my belief, my view is, this passage is clearly talking about believers that fail to bear fruit are not useful to Jesus, and then will suffer temporal judgment by way of physical death and by losing rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. I can demonstrate that as well. Now, this word abide's an interesting word. Let me pull this up here and explain what that means. The word abide... Uh, is a clear indication that Christ is speaking of fellowship with him, not salvation through him, as Dr. Bing points out. It's a term of intimate fellowship and is a condition of discipleship, not salvation. You see, the problem with lordship salvation that they get wrong 
is they confuse, they conflate salvation with discipleship. Those two are related, but yet they are completely different. Jesus, and there's a whole slew of verses I could point out. I don't have time to do it in the opening. But Jesus, for example, said to come unto him, that's salvation. Come after me, that's discipleship. And also the word abide and bearing fruit have nothing, nothing to do with salvation, but everything to do with fellowship and has everything to do with receiving rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And let me point this out. Jesus is not talking about believing in him for salvation or else he would have used the verb pistuio, which is believe. He didn't. He also did not use the noun faith, pistis in the Greek. He used the word abide. So when we're looking at abide, here's a couple of um, Greek dictionaries that simply explain it. The Greek word is meno. It's a primary verb. It means to stay in a given place, state, relation, or expectancy. Abide, continue, dwell, endure, be present, remain, stand, tarry. Uh, also, another uh, expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words said uh, the same thing. Basically, it means to remain or stay. Now, in the New Testament, abide can function as a transitive verb or an intransitive verb, basically, uh, in Greek. So and John uses minnow quite frequently in describing the believer's relation to Christ when he's talking about remaining or abiding in him. John 8, 31, in our passage here that we're looking at, John 15, 4, uh, verse 10, uh, verse 16. He also uses it in 1 John 2, 6 and verse 10. And it's also interesting, too, when you look how abide is used in reference to different people, places, and things. Here it's the use of a place in Matthew 10, 11. It's used metaphorically, 1 John 2, 19. Uh, it's said of God, 1 John 4, 15. It's said of Christ, John 6, 56, 15, 4, our passage here. Uh, it's used of the Holy Spirit. It's used of believers, the word of God, the truth. It's used of time. Uh, it's used of Christ, the word of God, cities, uh, bonds and afflictions, of qualities, faith, hope, and love, Christ's love, afflictions, brotherly love, the love of God, the truth, and on and on we could go. So that's how the word is used. But in our context, abide, again, does not mean salvation. It clearly does not. So let's get into this a little bit. I don't know how much time I'll have uh, to try to break each verse down. i got a little over six minutes. So we're talking about John 15, 1 through 2, where Jesus says, I'm the true vine, the Father's the vine dresser. Jesus says he's the true vine simply because in the Old Testament, Israel uh, failed to produce the kind of fruit that needed to be done for God. And so Jesus comes in to replace what Israel had failed at doing. That's why he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. In other words, he's the farmer. He's the one that tends it. It takes care of it. But he says, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, it's interesting if you study viticulture in those days, uh, take away there, the word does not mean to remove. The Greek word is iro, which means to prop up. So in those days, when a when a vine would would uh, go on the ground and not uh, fail to, to produce fruit, the farmer, the viticulturist, would come along and take rocks and trussels and literally take the vine and put it on that so it could be able to grow where the sun could hit it and it would be able to bear the fruit uh, that it needs to do. So it takes away there. It's not translated or removes, as many scholars think, it's a form of judgment there. It's not. Uh, and he also goes on to say, every branch of me that, that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So he literally props up those vines. An example of that is in John chapter one, where he restored Peter three different times, not to salvation, but to fellowship. 
And the apostles themselves, they didn't always abide. If you study Matthew, they were, they ran, you know, when Jesus died on the cross and uh, just after his resurrection, they, they were in hiding. They were scared for their lives. So they didn't even always abide, but they certainly did not lose their salvation. The text never indicates that anywhere. Now, scholars have interpreted this uh, in many ways. Uh, I mentioned uh, one already, a couple already, but I hold the view that it means to lift up. It means not cut off. Um, that's what I go along with. Uh, so lopping off here refers to those that were never saved. That's what uh, others say. Lopping off is seen as a lesser form of discipline. I think um, Merritt mentioned that in his opening. And, of course, lopping off means cutting and throwing away, a reference to fruitless believers that will experience physical death. Uh, that's certainly uh, an interpretation there that I believe some people have. Some free grace people uh, people have that. But I just believe it simply means to prop up, not remove. Okay, now um, we, we could talk about pruning there, and I'll probably save that for more of the actual discussion. John 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, notice here, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. The Bible talks about being clean because of the word of God. He says you're already clean. They are already saved. Uh, he could also be talking about sanctification, but the point is they were already in position to be able to come to a deeper abiding or a deeper, a deeper fellowship with Christ because they were already clean. They were already clean. They were already in Christ. Now notice he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. What? Unless it abides in the vine. Fruit bearing, not staying saved, not trying to work by good works, not trying to prove you're saved by good works, not trying to stay saved by good works or get saved by, two, by good works. They were already saved. He says, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. There's no way they could produce the kind of fruit that needed to be done unless they depended on Jesus Christ. Now, if this was talking about salvation, he's not going to contradict himself and say, well, you guys are already in me, but you got to get in me again. <laughs> you see, there's the problem with the conditional view. They were already saved. He was talking about a deeper abiding in the sense, again, of fellowship that would produce the kind of life that pleased God. So positionally, we're already clean. Now, if you look back in John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus referred to the believer as completely clean, noting only the feet need washing. And he referred to Judas as an unbeliever, and he was not clean. Judas was never a believer. He was never regenerate. Uh, so, and he says he went, he, went to, he went to his own place. So be clean refers to our position in Christ. Discipleship refers to our condition in Christ. You see, there's a difference between our position in Christ and our condition in Christ. Position in Christ means we're saved, we're regenerate, we're born again, nothing takes that away. No person, place, or thing can do that, regardless of what any verses that have been brought up uh, try to disprove. Um, Jesus said, uh, those that believe in him and trust him may have eternal life. It's eternal life where it must have another name. So he says here, abiding me and I in you, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. They can't live the Christian life or they can't live a godly life without depending on Jesus to do it through them. They cooperate by abiding. And he makes it clear you can't do it unless you abide in me. Now, uh, Gary Derrickson, a, a pastor who's also a scholar, uh, he says here, we may observe the distinction uh, by noting what John 15 says, where the in me of branch two is seen to be different from the abiding me of branch four. In other words, they're already in Christ in verse two, and they're commanded in verse four to abide in him 
for a fellowship. So to abide in Christ is to be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ in fellowship. That deals again with con condition. And so uh, what about the not abiding branches of uh, verse six? Uh, my time's just about to run out here. So I would like to get to be able to talk about verses five and six a little bit more, but there's four interpretations of that verse. And basically that verse, I believe the unfruitful, uh, unfruitful believers who fail to abide in Christ will experience temporal judgment, which is premature death. We see that in first John five sixteen and in Isaiah of fire acts five, uh, one through 11 and those that died because they didn't judge themselves. First Corinthians 11, 28 through 30 and unfruitful believers fail to abide in Christ, lose their rewards at the judgment seat. So my time is up. I, I can talk more about this when we get into discussion. Thank you. John, thank you so much for that's 15 minutes on the dot. Much appreciated. And so gentlemen, that concludes the 15 minute opening statements. Very good points. I appreciate the visuals and lots of points for us to discuss throughout this important debate. So Merritt, we are now going to hand it back to you as we move into the eight minute uninterrupted rebuttal portion of the debate. And with that, whenever you're ready, Merritt, the floor is yours. Uh, Donnie, can you uh, put up my uh, yes. screen? Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you very much, John, for that. Um, I, I learned a few details that I was not previously aware of, um, but uh, I didn't uh, hear anything that changed uh, my stance in the position that the burning does refer to eternal judgment. Um, and so I'll, I'll touch on that uh, because I, I think the, uh, that aspect of your presentation was, uh, was most demanding of a response, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and so you mentioned the pruning, which is related to God <clears throat> uh, purging the branches so that they may bring forth more fruit. Uh, and so uh, I first want to reiterate that in John 15, Jesus makes it clear that uh, it is important to the Father that Christians produce good fruit for the purpose of glorifying the Father and uh, earning rewards. And also that the ones who don't produce fruit are taken away. Now, you said that the taking away doesn't necessarily mean a loss of salvation, which um, I can agree up to that point. But what about the burning? Um, in other words, where in my uh, practice of connecting the burning there in the gathering by the men uh, for the purpose of their eventual burning to the parable about um, the um, sorry, let me just uh, in Matthew chapter 13, where it's, it says that um, uh, Jesus speaks about the harvest and the harvest is a recurring theme in Matthew 24, which is, of course, at the end of days. Uh, he, it, Jesus says in starting verse uh, 30 of chapter 13 of Matthew, uh, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then he explains in uh, verse 38, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Uh, of course, that begs the question, can a uh, 
one who was previously a wheat transform into the terrible obviously in my stance is that yes they can just as a sheep can be uh considered a goat at the end of days which is why jesus parses them out uh he continues on the enemy that sold them is the devil the harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire so shall it be in the end of this world uh, in verse 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to ear, let him hear. Now, when the Jews heard this parable from Jesus, they would have immediately connected that to what they, ones who are uh, learned in scripture, connected that to Daniel uh, chapter 12. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and ever everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. Clearly what verse 43 of Matthew chapter 13 is talking about when he says righteous shine forth as a son in the kingdom of their father. So the issue with me is, is um, I, I, I'd like to, I hope that through this debate, I can, uh, I can learn where the fallacy is in connecting the parable about the branches, which don't bear fruit and are gathered by the men, the men being the angels who are the reapers to be burned. Uh, one way I could be convinced is if I could be pointed to uh, another example in scripture where a branch or any other kind of uh, uh, plant is taken away to be burned, that is not uh, salvific, that is explicitly stated in scripture, that is not salvific. But as I said, the problem with using this kind of analogy is that uh, you're conveying the, the, the you're, you're denoting the concept of destruction when really you mean to improve something. You know, when you say, to a child, I'm going to discipline you so that you may grow up better. That's different from saying, I'm going to beat you to death and expect them to, to interpret that as meaning that you're going to improve their lives so that they can grow up to be more mature uh, adults. So uh, how much time do I have, Donnie? You have just over three minutes. Thank you. Um, and uh so Reverend John touched on the um, the possibility of uh, the branches in uh, in uh, John chapter 15 as possibly being uh, never saved. He kind of glossed over that, uh, quickly touched on that. And I, I want to try to refute that uh, by way of, of uh, well, first in John 15, Jesus says that you are clean and then remain in me. The problem with saying that you have those, the ones that are taking on, taken away were uh, never justified or never saved is that <clears throat> the not bearing fruit was the reason for them being taken away. And so if they were never saved, then theoretically, uh, uh, then being in uh, the vine to begin with is what's required to be considered saved in the end. Then if they were never saved, then simply by not bearing fruit which they could have never done in the first place uh you know the subjunctive mood in, in the greek again then uh theoretically all they would have had to have done is manifest some good fruit or some fruit that could be deemed as uh, uh as acceptable and they would have never been taken out 
in, uh, taken out eventually. Uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus declares to, uh, to a group of people uh, upon his return, uh, saying to them that, I never knew you. Uh, to me, I take this as, as meaning uh, Jesus pointing out among these people that they never had any saving faith to begin with. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 7, uh, in uh, verse 23, it, he declares the work that they thought they were, that were good works, the healing of the sick, prophesying in his name, casting out demons. Uh, Jesus considers that to be a work of iniquity. And and uh, we 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 know that he we, Jesus already said that those who are uh, those who are his those who are born again Christians must have the capacity to produce good fruit. Now John and I uh, probably agree, though we uh, we come at it from different angles that there can be Christians who uh, are. Uh, so backslidden that uh, within the short period of time that you may interact with them, it may appear as though they don't have any fruit. And uh, in when in reality, they're just in a heavily backslidden state. I, I accept that. I have no problem with that as well. The issue is my position says that a Christian must manifest some good fruit at some point in their life. Uh, it's a continual thing, though the frequency of it is up for debate. Uh, it could be uh, few and far apart, or it could be uh, very frequent, you know, within a short period of time. So Jesus says to them, I never knew you. But in Matthew chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, he tells the, um, uh, the 20 seconds, he tells the wicked servant that you should have sowed uh, the, uh, the talent uh, so that I may uh, gain usury from it. This is what I take from this as a gospel, uh, and I don't know how you can not take this as meaning the gospel to produce more Christians to, to preach the gospel. They knew what the gospel was, so therefore they had to have been saved. If they were never saved, then it follows that they wouldn't have decided to ever invest their time to do this. But they, because they fell away, they therefore uh, Jesus says to them, He doesn't say to them, I never knew you, but He points out their work as uh, not producing that. The, the fruit, and he casts them out into outer darkness, which is just another way of saying cast them out into uh, the eternal fire of um, of damnation, weeping and gnashing of teeth out in there. Thank you. Time. Thank you, Merritt, for that um, rebuttal. I, it's a heavy topic. We had 15-minute uh, opening statements, and so I allowed the rebuttal to go nine minutes instead of eight. And so, to be fair, John... Crawford, we are going to give you the same amount of time. So whenever you're ready, John, you've got nine minutes. Floor is yours. All right. We just set my timer here. Okay. <clears throat> here we go. All right. Several things there to note. There's no way I can respond to every single verse. There's just simply not enough time for that. Uh, again, instead of spit firing verses, I'd prefer if we just deal specifically with the given text we're talking about and not uh, try to go through the whole Bible in 30 minutes. Uh, I want to deal specifically with this text. We're talking, like one of my former professors used to say, let the text talk, deal with this text. We're talking about this text. Now, it's one thing if you use parallel verses to make argumentation, but to use several other verses and they were pulled out of context. For example, 
Uh, and I try to write these down as fast as I could. You quoted Daniel chapter 12, one through two. You don't have an understanding of prophecy and how that relates to uh, Israel and the church and the end times. Daniel 12, one and two deals with uh, res the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. Uh, if you study that in context during the end of the seven year tribulation. Uh, but again, that's another discussion. Uh, you mentioned John 15 about the, the fire. And if I could get back here and share my screen again, I think, Donnie, you've got, still got that pulled yeah, up. Yeah, it's, it's shared for you. Uh, let me get back here to the fire part. Uh, and I mentioned just a couple of those views. But now, fire can refer to temporal judgment of genuine believers. That is mentioned in Leviticus 10, 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, which is the primary use here. Now, that passage there does not say that angels gather men and, or, or women and throw them into the lake of fire. And secondly, by the way, the Greek word Hades or Gehenna is not used. Uh, the fire there is not even literal because if it was literal, then that means Jesus would be a vine and we literally be branches or the, the apostles would be branches. See, it's a matter of interpretation and learning how to interpret the passage properly. And that's simply not the way it's to be interpreted. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ, which takes place after the rapture, I believe, mentions and um, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. He's judging people based on their faithfulness, their works, not whether they're saved or not, which, by the way, is another good proof for eternal security, because if we make it to heaven, when we make it to heaven, we're already there. This happens after the rapture. We get raptured. All living believers get raptured. We're already before the judgment seat. We're already in heaven, and the judgment of our sins has been taken care of at the cross. Jesus said it's finished. He cried out, it is finished. It's done. It's over. So we're being judged for our faithfulness here. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, it talks about gaining rewards and losing rewards. And Paul is talking about uh, a um, uh, an architectural uh, metaphor here. But he, he says here, that uh, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work work is burned that he is built on it, it endures. He will receive a reward. If anyone's work um, is burned, he will, is, is burned. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Now, he's not talking about literal fire there either. There's no fire in hell. Fire is a way of purification. It talks about judgment of God. Uh, the book of Revelation says Jesus has eyes like a simile, like uh, fire. So literally here, everything that doesn't stand the test uh, of Jesus, that has no eternal value, there's going to be a loss or reward. And so it's as if it's going through fire. So fire here is used in a metaphorical sense, just like it's used here in the passage of verse six. Um, he's not talking about hell. Hell's not mentioned. And another thing, if, if, if the apostles were in danger of hell fire, why do you think Jesus would have said later in this passage, uh, I have spoken these things unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may remain full. Oh, but by the way, you could be going to hell. Uh, no, I don't think so. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They certainly would have had no reason to be joyful, that it had no reason to love one another, that it had no reason to try to live for Christ. If there was that possibility that, oh, by the way, there's an exclusion clause here. You can have everlasting life, guys, but eh, if you fail to abide, you don't produce the kind of fruit and you don't live it, then you lose it. That's simply not what the scriptures teach. Now, the fire there, again, is metaphorical. It refers to... Um, 
the uh, viticultural practices in those days of how branches that were basically dead and dried up and failed to produce fruit would literally be piled into a fire and burned. But that doesn't mean people are going to be burned. It never says people are going to be burned. It says men gather them, not angels gather them and cast them into the lake of fire. It never says anything about the lake of fire. It never says anything uh, about the great white throne judgment, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, so uh, the fire there is referring to temporal judgment, which could be premature death, as I've already mentioned earlier in my opening statement. And also the fire is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ pertaining to loss of rewards, not loss of salvation. Also, I think he uh, mentioned, let me see here if I can find it. There were some other, some other things mentioned. I don't know if I'll be able to get to hit it all. Uh, you mentioned Esau and his birthright. That's Old Testament. That has nothing to do with the dispensation of, of, of uh, this particular time period. It, and it never also never says Esau lost any salvation. Now, salvation has always been by faith, and obviously Esau had it, but it never says he lost it. But that's a different, uh, a different context there. That was taken out of context. Revelation 3, where you referred to the tribulation, was taken out of context. I, d I don't have time to address every single passage. I just don't. I mean, I can't. There's just no way. I want to deal primarily with the passage passages that we're talking about here at hand. Now, I do want to hit one you brought up, and I'm only going to mention this one because this is one I debated with earlier last year. Uh, I had a I had a debate uh, on this too on Matthew seven. Uh, Matthew seven, uh, if you look back in the context, uh, is not dealing with believers in general. It's it's plainly dealing with false prophets. And the passage uh, tells you that. And I thought I had it here pulled up, but apparently I didn't. But if you look back at Matthew 7, uh, it plainly talks about false prophets. It's not talking about, there it is. Uh, it's not talking about um, what you would say it was people in general. Uh, let's see. Here it is. I'm sorry. All right, there it is. I got too many slides going on. All right, now notice here. Let me just break that down for I got two minutes, so I got to fly through this. There's just not enough time. Man. Uh, he talks about entering by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. So he's talking about getting into heaven and into hell. Then he goes in verse 15. Notice this. Here's the context. Context is king. Beware of false prophets, not believers in general or unbelievers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. False prophets, not talking about believers in general. And then he goes on to talk about gathering grapes and thorn bushes and every good tree that bears good fruit. Um, he says, but a bad tree bears bad fruit and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Uh, basically there, the fruit is not talking about works or lifestyle or any of those things. It's talking about teaching. In other words, you test a prophet by his teaching. In the Old Testament, they would stone false prophets for not uh, for giving false prophecies. He's talking about uh, the teaching there. The fruit is the teaching, not how they lived, and false prophets. And that part there about every tree does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not a reference to believers losing their salvation. It's a reference to the false prophets because they're false prophets. They're not saved. And yes, they will end up in hell, but that's not referring to believers in general uh, because uh, then that means a believer could never sin and somebody had to be perfect uh, to be able to get to heaven, which no one is. And he goes on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. 
Then they talk about they did good works. They've cast out demons. They've done many wonders. He'll say, I never, never knew you. Not I used to know you, but well, you lost your salvation. I got to cast you out. No, I never, never means never. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there he's talking about uh, probably some of the people that were influenced by the false prophets. And this is a reference uh, to the uh, great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. So it's talking about false prophets, not believers or unbelievers. My time's up. Okay, John, I appreciate the nine minute rebuttal. I got to say time is flying by. So great job and great work to the both of you. I appreciate the points. I appreciate the visuals. And we've got a lot to discuss. So before we get into the uh, free-flowing discussion, to the audience, I want to remind you, if you've got questions for our debaters, Merritt and John, just make sure you're tagging me. I am currently all caught up on questions, and we really do have quite a few fantastic questions that are on topic for John and Merritt. So with that, uh, John, he did just end with his rebuttal. And I am going to start the timer. We've got a 45-minute discussion. We'll keep it uh, free-flowing and organic and make sure that we are staying on topic as much as we can. So, Merritt, let's give you the opportunity to pick, uh, pick the first point or ask the first question for the discussion. Go ahead. Thank you. All right, John. Um, well, uh, to, to begin, I'd like to ask if... Um, the conditionalist perspective uh, in the way that uh, we interpret John 15. Actually, Merrick, could I but, stop? Are, are you looking uh, to share your screen or? Uh, no, not at the moment. Okay, okay. You guys just cue me if you need screen shares. Uh, the, would you agree, John, that um, based on our presupposition, um, I, I, as you uh, rightly noted, I brought up a, a lot of scripture from elsewhere in the Bible. Um, and uh, you also... Uh, uh, commented that um, there are uh, there are multiple passages throughout the Bible which uh, uh, declare eternal security, uh, which was your claim. Uh, and so, it, it, what 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 I took away from that was that you have this presupposition, and part of the part of what your presupposition served was to help you uh, uh, further draw out the uh, the non salvific nature of. John 15. Would you say that uh, that's a fair description of our mutual uh, positions? Um, no, um, I, I don't. I mean, what are you what are you asking again about? You're saying that I said it was non-salvific. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned uh, in your opening that um, uh, that you didn't have time to address all the scriptures, and which, of course, I don't blame you. I wouldn't be able to address, uh, if, if you came with, with a lot of scriptures, I would have only pick out the best ones and try to refute them. And, and uh, in all fairness, you did uh, uh, respond very well to some of the ones that uh, that I brought up, which obviously you felt were uh, important enough to respond to. And uh, so the ones that you said, uh, scripture, uh, the Scripture uh, uh, pertaining to uh, eternal security is abundant in uh, numerous other passages. You, you mentioned that in your opening. And so you use that as uh, you, you predicated your, your interpretation of John 15 onto those. And so specifically, can you give me just one or two of, of what you are referring, what you had in mind when you said eternal security is proven um, 
abundantly elsewhere. Well, I mean, there's a whole, I mean, I could go over a whole slew of verses, but you know, again, we're, not, debating, we're not necessarily debating. I mean, we're, it's in the passage. It can be addressed in the, within the context of the passage, but uh, I don't have enough time to go into all the other scriptures. I just want to deal specifically precisely with this particular passage. Okay. Fair uh, enough. If, if, if we can, if we can just talk about this, like the burning in verse six, and we can talk about, you know, uh, like the, the biting and all that. Uh, so um, I guess, I guess we can just ask questions back and forth. Right, Donnie. So, um, yeah, so I, I, my, my, my contention is yes. I'm sorry. I misunderstood your question. My contention is yes. I am, I am um, affirming that this is not a salvific passage. Uh, he doesn't mention salvation in the passage and here's why. Uh, and I mentioned this uh, earlier. He never used the word pistuio, believe the verb. He never used the word faith, pistis, the noun. So he's not talking about how to get saved or how to stay saved. Uh, if he is, he would not have mentioned later in the passage um, that he, where he says, uh, where he talks about, I've spoken these things to you that your, you know, my, your joy may be full and my joy might remain in you. How is it that they could have had joy? This is a question. How is it the apostles could have had joy if there was just a little inkling, a little slight chance? that they could have lost their salvation. How would that be a joyful occasion? Well, I would say that the joy comes from uh, knowing what Christ, who Christ was, is, and what he accomplished at Calvary, which is the same way that many conditionalist Christians today, uh, which uh, is uh, fractionally a larger group than eternal security uh, uh, adherence, uh, that that uh, we have joy in, in the finished work of Christ and the justification that we have. And we also have that godly fear of falling away. And we, so we, we pray about that. So, I mean, we, I can have joy in my salvation without, uh, uh, without having to forego my, uh, the, the, the idea that I might fall away in the future. I mean, I don't like that, but it, you know, over and over again, scripture says to, to have a healthy degree of godly fear. Well, I understand. I understand that, but to me, it just knows it. It's not plausible. That view is not plausible, and I don't mean this as a disrespect to you by any means. So don't take it that way. But I don't think the view is plausible because if if I if the apostles were in danger of hell hellfire, I don't think I would have been experiencing joy at that moment. I don't think I would. At least it wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been a continual joy. It wouldn't have been something that I could have rejoiced about. Well, you know, we're saved right now, but tomorrow we may lose it. So I just don't see how um, also that that, to me, would not make any logical sense uh, to have joy one minute and the next minute, you know, you're losing it because Jesus says, oh, wait a minute, you may lose salvation. You may have been in danger of hellfire. So that's just my take on it. Well, so, um, on the flip side, though, I, I would say it's equally illogical to uh, be so fear stricken that you have absolutely no joy as a Christian who holds the condition, conditional security because... Okay. We have uh, the salvation, the, the peace that we have in our faith is due to our current, uh, our current um, st state of mind, our, uh, where our heart is now. Uh, we, are, we are saved because we choose to believe on Jesus Christ as, the, uh, as Lord and Savior who uh, died and paid the, the cost of reconciliation. Uh, and so that is our, by our free will choice. Uh, now, in the future, if I were to freely choose to apostatize, in my heart apost apostatize, 
and join the ranks of Satan and all of you know, uh, then that would be by definition what I desired from my heart. And so, because if I desire it, then there's really no fear in that anyway. Uh, but, 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 uh, so I know where you're coming from with that. And I think, you know, where I'm coming from uh, in the sense of, about the fear. So, uh, if it's all right with you, I'd like to, uh, raise the question about, um, the, uh, well, you mentioned, uh, I might as well address it now cause I won't get a chance in, in the, cause what comes after this, I think is the closing, um, going by fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So you said you want to deal with the uh, text of John 15, which I can respect entirely. And I would uh, contend that my interpretation of the burning as being salvific um, is no less justified than your interpretation of it not being salvific. So um, if I if I say, well, if the men gather them and they are burned and Jesus elsewhere says that the reapers being angels who will come at the end of days, gather the wicked out from the earth and cast them into uh, Hades and they will have, they will undergo experience uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, how is that less valid in your opinion from the way that you tie the burning to say uh, the burning of works where I would say that to, to say that the burning of, uh, of one's works being of poor quality and therefore losing rewards in the afterlife uh, is disjunct when you try to superimpose that onto John 15, because in John 15, I mean, all analogy breaks down eventually, but in John 15, Jesus makes it clear that the branches are the Christians, his disciples uh, being some of them. And if the branches don't abide, they are removed gathered, which I contend are the angels at the end of the days, the reapers gather them by means of a gathering. So this is a gathering. They are gathered and they are burned. So can you cite a um, an example from scripture where uh, a burning uh, of, a, of, a, of a former believer um, actually restores their faith and not their works, for example? Well, I mean, I cited First Corinthians chapter three, where it talks about the burning of the works, and those people, which I think is which I think is a great argument against uh, your position, because if believers, when believers make it to heaven, they're judged according to the works; they're not judged on whether they have everlasting life. That's already taken care of. He plainly says, "You shall suffer loss, but you, he himself, shall be saved." Yet so is through fire. So it plainly tells you there, if works or something or a lack of works or fruit cause you to lose salvation, it doesn't say that. The text plainly says it's a loss of rewards. And secondly, it's less valid because, as I mentioned earlier, the word for Gehenna, which is the lake of fire, is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Also, the word Hades is not mentioned or any of the other words for hell of the second judgment and death are not mentioned in that passage. Uh, and again, the fire there is not a literal fire or else the vine would be literal. Jesus, you know, we'd be branches, literal uh, God, the father would be a farmer. So that's how I take that. So that's why he's not talking about hell. Uh, he can't be talking. Now, let me ask you a question. Listen, well, I'm, well, I kind of have to, I know I'm going fast here. So I'm just kind of have to go while I'm thinking. Do you believe that the word abide itself is salvific? I do. Uh, based on what argument? Uh, dealing with just the text of John 15, uh, he, Jesus declares to his disciples that they are clean, which means that they are justified. That we can agree on, right? Uh, 
Sure. Yeah. Verse three. And some people believe it refers to sanctification, but either way they're, they're in Christ. Yes. And then he goes on to tell them, uh, he, he instructs them to remain in him. So because being, uh, uh, the, the analogy of being branches now being, uh, in the vine, which is Jesus, they are clean. Then, it, uh, stands to reason that if, they could be severed, then so goes their salvific status. Do you disagree? I do, because the, as I pointed out, not to keep, I don't want to be redundant here, but the word abide there means to remain or stay or continue. Now, he's already said, um, <clears throat> Donnie, if I can do just a quick share screen, can I do that real quick? Just real quick here. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Oh, thank you. Go okay. ahead. Uh, right there. If you if you notice the passage, he says you are already clean. He just told Judas that he wasn't clean. He's an unbeliever. Uh, there's no um, condition in here that says that they're absolutely going to lose salvation. Now, let me just say this. He says, "Abide in me, and I in you." The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He's talking about uh, fruit bearing there. He's not talking about getting saved or staying saved. And if the, if the, if he would have used, uh, you know, well, let me just ask you this question. Um, that's good, Donnie. If Jesus was talking about salvation, why did he not use the word believe as he did 98 times throughout the gospel of John. He only used the word abide. Why did he not use the word pist, the noun pistis for faith or pistio, the verb for belief? Uh, fair question. And to that, I would say that it wasn't necessary for him to do so for the same reason that the word belief is not ever mentioned in the other parables about the wheat and tares, the separation of the goat and sheep. Uh, because at that point, it'd be a, a redundant uh, uh, element of the, the, the grand tapestry of their sanctification, the, 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 their purification, I should say, in their walk of their Christian life, to reiterate that to depart or to apostatize would mean to forfeit that which got you saved in the first place. So John 15, in, by John 15, he's already at that point where he's teaching and teach where he's, and, and it doesn't start at John 15, but uh, he, uh, he relates this parable as a part of this, tautology about the end times, about the harvest uh, and the separate, separation of the righteous and the wicked. And the separation is, is accomplished by means of a gathering and by individuals who Jesus says are the reapers, them being the angels, uh, which is why I asked um, earlier if uh, you could provide me, provide me an example of uh, something uh, explicitly relating to chastisement in which the branches or Christians or uh, sheep, uh, anything that can be analogically uh, associated with Christians being gathered, taken and burned and out of the other end of the furnace, they come out better Christians. There is no passage that says that. Okay. So then would it, would you say it's fair then that, uh, that I would take that as a reason to say that, uh, it is logically and hermeneutically consistent to interpret John 15 as being salvific in nature, even if Jesus wasn't intending to warn 
the ones who he was speaking to about losing their salvation, but rather to relay that to other Christians as they preach the gospel? Uh, no, I still disagree because, first of all, you got to understand the, the, the context. Again, he's talking to and about the apostles. He's not talking to us here, uh, modern-day believers today. Um, and also it's where it says, let me back up here. Um, why would he have to tell them to abide in him if they were already in him? They're already saved. They're already positionally saved. Why does he talk about the condition for disciples, um, discipleship? Why would, in other words, it'd be, uh, he'd be contradicting himself. Well, you know, you're in me, you're out of me, but you got to abide in me, but they're already in him. Verse two uh alludes to that every branch in me now i didn't mean, I get a chance to mention this let me just mention this he's not talking about in the sense of the pauline being baptized in the spirit in me because there was no baptism of the holy spirit there was no uh, sealing of the holy spirit there was no permanent indwelling of the holy spirit that didn't take place till acts chapter two when the baptism of the holy spirit came on the scene and the church started but he says in me here is talking about they were already in the kingdom. In other words, they still belong to him. They still had a relationship. So why does he make a distinguishment there between if they're already in him, why does he say abide in me? Is he saying you're saved, but get more saved? Um, in a way, yes, um, as a conditionalist. Get more uh, saved? How can you get more saved? Well, uh, the nature of salvation, as I understand it, is you have the imputation of the righteousness that belonged to Jesus and transferred to us when we impute our sins to him, which was the work that he accomplished at Calvary. That's initial justification. Following that, you have spiritual purification, as I like to use it, but they also use, uh, you know, it's a redundancy of the word ju justification, salvation. We, same thing with the word heaven, you know, sky, heaven, space, heaven, heaven, where God is. Uh, so you're being sanctified in the sense that you're being purified, purged to produce more fruit because it means that much to God. It's mutually beneficial, beneficial for our uh, growth as Christians and beneficial to God for his glorification, his name being glorified among uh, the world, in the world. And so uh, he is, it, we are, um, as eternal security say, we are sick, we have been saved, are being saved and will be saved in the end. The difference is I, uh, the conditionalist view says, which I argue is the orthodox view of Christianity dating back to the early church. But of course, you know, that's another debate uh, is that um, you can permanently deviate from that path of purification. And so when Jesus says, abide in me, what I take from that, and, I, and I'll uh, admit, I didn't look too deeply into the word abide. I think I briefly um, looked into it in my preparation for this debate, but I didn't look further beyond that in its uh, contextual usage in the history of Jewish literature. Uh, I simply take that as saying, now that you are in me, you are saved, remain in me. And John says the same thing later on in 1 John 2, chapter 2. Uh, Let that therefore abide in you. If that therefore remains in you, you will continue in both the Father and the Son. And he goes on to say, we will inherit that which he promised, eternal life. So um, uh, were you uh, intending to uh, uh, convey that the, the word abide there in, in the Greek means something more than just stay where you are? Say, if you walk into a house, say, okay, now you're safe. Now stay here. Don't go back out. Well, or, or not to, uh, well, now you're in my house, but don't, you know, you got to keep coming in 
Well, I mean, basically, according to my slides here, when I looked up and I did the uh, study on it, it's meno is the Greek word. It means stay in a given place, state, relation, or expectancy, abide, continue, dwell, uh, endure, be present, remain, tarry. And it can either be used as a transitive verb or intransitive verb. In this passage, it's used as an intransitive verb, uh, basically. So, uh, in, you know, and again, it depends on the context you're talking about. And I brought that up because that's a pertinent word study there that, that's pertinent to our study. Um, he, you know, you can use it of a place. You can just use metaphorically. It's said of God. I mean, there's all the references. I won't take time to, to go all through those, but that's yeah, how that's, it's that's used. It. Uh, That's fair. And, and, yeah, and in, in the that. context, it depends on the context you're talking about. But in our context, abide does mean remain, dwell, continue, keep doing what you're doing. They were already saved, and therefore, because they're saved, they were to be able to produce fruit. And the produ- and here's right. the thing: if you, if as a conditionalist perspective, let me ask you this question. So, do you believe uh, being a fruit inspector? And, and let me explain what I mean by that before you answer. In other words, do you believe as someone claims to be a Christian and they're not, as you can tell, living like a Christian, would you judge them and say that person's not saved? Because absolutely they're not, not. producing the amount of, amount of fruit. You don't believe that? Absolutely not. Okay, and the reason I, I, don't, I don't either. But some people do. Some lordship people do. They believe if someone, oh, they say they're saved, but they're out here drinking and Messing around with women, but, smoking dope. I, I'd stuff. like to, uh, yeah, I'd like to give a caveat to that. Uh, when I say absolutely not, what I mean is, uh, if I were to say you're in uh, grad school, college, or whatever, and there's a classmate who you had gotten to know for a couple months, uh, and through in, in that brief time that you spent interacting with that person, that person shows no obvious signs of the fruit of the spirit or any good works of that nature uh, should one jump to the conclusion and say that person is definitely not saved. Absolutely not because you're not with them. You haven't been with them long enough to have a fully educated uh, uh, inference on how accurately their uh, public conduct is reflective of their spiritual uh, nature. Now, on the other hand, one can have a prolonged exposure to a person through interaction. Uh, and then from uh, the cumulative uh, understanding of how that person chooses to live their life, their lifestyle, you can have a uh, not only an educated, but I would say by that point, uh, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to gain a level of confidence in your judgment about whether or not that person probably is saved or not saved and go from there on, where if you judge that they probably not saved, I would uh, try to witness to them. But there's always that margin of error. We, we should never jump the, the gun on that. And I understand as a uh, free grace proponent, you encounter many uh, 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 mil- militant uh, lordshippers, conditionalists who uh, act as fruit inspectors. I think the Calvinists are most guilty of that. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I don't uh, hold to that as well. I don't hope that either. Oh, good. That that's good. We 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 can definitely at least partially agree with that on anyway. I mean, you can't really tell by someone's works because you're not with someone all the time, twenty four seven. They Absolutely. might be they might be reading your Bible. You might be witnessing and praying. You don't always see that. Maybe Absolutely. maybe you see some of it, but even if you do, I mean, people can fake it. They, you know, false believers, false professors. They can wear the three piece suit, give money at church. They can appear to be. 
they can even speak Christianese. They can even know, you know, what the words are. They can say, hey, I'm born again. But really, the only way we would know is to ask that person, are you truly, are you born again? And, you know, are you living for Jesus if you're talking about discipleship? And even then, we still don't 100% know. I think only God knows deep down inside a person's heart. Anyway, that's, I just brought that up because we're talking about fruit and it is in relation uh, uh, to the passage. Now, okay, uh, let's move on. What do you think? uh, I guess you want to ask me some uh, questions. Uh, yeah, so if I just can ask you, uh, and this is a, a follow-up to what we were just talking about, but I'll make it brief. Um, I, I want to touch on where we do s- disagree, I suspect, which is that my position holds that a person who is truly justified and indwelt with the Holy Spirit uh, in the new covenant, that person is categorically, utterly incapable of never manifesting any fruit. Would you say that you disagree with that? Never able to bear fruit? Uh, that that person, uh, for example, on Judgment Day, uh, you find out uh, uh, this Christian standing next to you, and he said, hey, um, how much work did you do? You've earned a lot of rewards, and you go through your laundry list of works, and then you ask them back, well, what work did you do? He said, I got nothing. Really? Nothing? No, not, a, not a thing. Do you, is that a feasible option to you? Uh, well, I mean, maybe, maybe some people believe that. I, I myself believe, and the free grace position is that, you know, you will do something for the Lord. But okay, we, we let, agree. Let, me, let me say this, not in order to prove you're saved right. or to keep your salvation. But if Christ has changed you, you, you'll at least have something, I believe. Now, most free grace people believe you will have some kind of of, of fruit, whatever that is, to, to what degree and to what quality and quantity, no one knows that but God. And that's kind of my point. I so, agree completely. No, I, I don't hold that if you're if you're changed by Christ, he's changed, he's the one that changed you. And there should be, there should be an outflow of works. Now but, let me say this. It doesn't mean they're going to be automatic, or else we wouldn't be commanded in several places that we should walk in good works, Ephesians 2 10. Uh Titus talks about you know, that we should be zealous for good works. And so the Bible tells us we should, but should doesn't necessarily mean could. Um, you know, well, so it's a productive mood there yeah. in the Greek, those, those, a lot of those verses. So I believe that we should, but it doesn't necessarily mean every time that we're going to be perfect or that we're going to be sinless. No, I don't believe that at all. Now, some people believe that. That's crazy. But well, they do. Uh, first, firstly, just, just to point out, um, by what you just said, are you're you're aware that that differentiates you from the extreme end of liberal free grace, which says that yes, one moment of one brief moment of belief locks you in for the rest of your life, and you could never produce any fruit, not show an ounce of repentance. You can uh, live. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, there, there. Well, there's differing views. There's different views in the camps of free grace, and that's okay. So you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not with them. Well, now, I believe once a person's saved, if it was way back when, they're still saved. Yes, but what I'm saying is, uh, it's the works and the fruit are not necessarily automatic. That's why he has to command us to abide in him. And when we abide in him, then yes, there will be should be fruit produced, but, well, I, but the I, I, abiding, he commands us to abide. He doesn't say command us to produce fruit. He commands us to abide. So when we abide, that is a supernatural outflow of the fruit, because he says, if you abide in me and I, and you is already in us, he's living in us. He basically lives his life through us when we depend on him to do it. 
Well, I'd like to uh, try to parse that out a little bit because I heard you say the same thing in your previous debate with uh, A.K. Richardson that fruits does, do not come automatically. And I'd like to start by asking, what do you mean by automatic? Like automatic manifestation, like you, you're suddenly... Yeah, I mean, for, for example, to... for example, let's say someone... Okay, I'll, I'll just, I'm just throwing this out here. Uh, at a church service, someone walks down the aisle. Um, I'm Southern Baptist, that's usually what we give an altar call. People come down the aisle come down the altar, they get saved, they accept Christ, they we receive their everlasting life. That person could stay um, immature for a while if they're not discipled. In other words, and this is where the church is failing, is they're not discipling new believers and they end up not going on to discipleship. So for that period of time, that moment in time, there could be a moment of not bearing fruit, okay? There could be moments and it doesn't mean that there's going to be consistent. Now, as far as uh, going back to abiding in Christ, when someone abides in Christ, it has to be a choice. That's why he I says, agree. you abide in my word, then you shall be my disciples. If you do these things, you shall be my disciples. Indeed. He didn't say, you know, you will not be saved. He didn't say you're going to lose it. He said, you'll be my disciples if you do these things. And so, and there's a big difference between salvation and discipleship. And, and I don't know what we can talk about that too, if you want, but, uh, I, I, you know, a lot, a lot of lordshippers conflate those two and say they're the exact same thing. In other words, um, like for example, I've heard preachers give altar calls. You've got to come follow Jesus, and I'm thinking, how can a person follow Christ until they first come to Christ? You see, it puts the cart before the horse. You first got to become a believer, then follow Christ. Now, I know there are examples uh, in in John where it talks about, well, like Judas, he was a disciple, right? but he was never a believer. Uh, and, and today there's believers that eventually maybe it may take time for them to become disciples. But a lot of that, the reason they don't, there can be moments of lack of discipleship. But if that person is truly changed and saved, then there should be enough in there. And there is, because the Bible says God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. There should be enough there to be able to push and ask questions and get some help and get some answers so the person can go on to maturity. There's a lot of Christians that are spiritually immature. I, I agree completely. And I'm glad uh, you uh, articulated that last point, which I wanted to respond to quickly in okay. that your last point about there should be something to uh, give them that uh, initiative to uh, embark on that road of discipleship, wherein they can uh, spiritually become mature. And that is where um, we may disagree, which is that you have uh, faith. And then from that, you have works without the faith, like people in Matthew 7, which, by the way, your response was uh, simply reaffirming mine. And uh, I didn't I wasn't saying that uh, they lost their salvation. I, I was affirming that they were false converts, hence why Jesus declares to them, I never knew you. Uh, but then when you compare that to Matthew 24, he doesn't say that. He condemns them for not producing the good works. So therefore, logically, it follows that they could have. But if they could have, then it must have been justified. Otherwise, it would be illogical to expect them to produce that which they could never have done in the first place. But uh, where I think we disagree is that in order to have true saving faith, then that is that that is what would eventually, like a seed, manifest in fruits in uh, a plant. Uh, which is what we categorize as works. Now, um, we agree that a person can be backslidden, can be spiritually immature, 
where it, on the surface they may appear to be um, unsaved, but in reality they're just uh, backslidden, backslidden. They just need discipleship uh, and uh, further spiritual sanctification. That I agree completely. But do you disagree that if you, if one has saving faith, that that faith is that which will always drive them to produce works? Drive them? It should, yes. As I mentioned, yes. I mean, if you're saved, it should drive you. But now, again, who is the one to determine the amount of works? Absolutely, right. I mean, I, for example, Matthew 6. Matthew 6 tells, you know, Jesus. he talks about going to your prayer closet secretly and God will reward you openly. Don't be like the hypocrites that stand on the side of the street corner fasting and they got frowns on their faces and, you know, they all this kind of stuff. So basically there's some things we're supposed to do in secret that everybody doesn't always see. So you can't always tell by works or by fruit or someone's producing fruit. That is, that is between the, the individual and God. And that's, that's what I'm saying. Amen. But to get I back to your that. question, should it drive you? Yes, it should drive you. Of course. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, you got the Holy spirit. The Bible says the Holy spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. A believer gets born again, regenerated the holy spirit's living on the inside of that individual now are there moments that i can grieve the holy spirit absolutely are there moments i can ignore the holy spirit absolutely are there moments where i can not obey the holy spirit absolutely but it does not mean in my estimation if what i know is scripture that i'm in danger of hell fire because i disobeyed and here's another thing god knows everything before it even happens. He knows the beginning from the end. He declares the beginning from the end. And I'm not a Calvinist, but I'm just simply saying in his foreknowledge presently, he knows everything. There's no, he doesn't have to look ahead. He doesn't have to look back. He doesn't have to have a personal secretary. He just knows. He, he knows everything. Like in Revelation, he says, I know your works. And here's what you did wrong. Here's what you did right. The seven churches, only two of them didn't get condemned. The other five got condemned. So he knows what we do. And my point is he knows the fruit. He knows the works. He knows who's abiding. That's, and that's, that's all I'm saying there. Okay, I agree. Uh, from what I've heard, uh, you just say I agree with 100%. Um, now, uh, I have to apologize just a little because I came into this debate expecting you to uh, hold the more liberal position of free grace. And um, that there is a sound doctrine in what you, uh, there is an extreme, there is an extreme. And, you're talking about more of the extreme end. I'm probably more the what's yeah, called bordering antinomianism. Well, I mean, we could discuss that, but I mean, it's, yeah. and I'm not antinomian by any means. It depends on how you define that, but I'm more moderate free grace. In other words, I do believe repentance is a part of salvation, but I do not believe it means to turn from sin or feel sorry for sin or stop your sinning. Uh, that's garbage. That's not what it means. It's metanoia. It means simply to change your mind. It's change of mind. It's all it yeah, means. and I'd like to, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, to, to have a change of mind. Um, that's, a, that's a fair qualification, I would say, qualifier. Um, now, a change of mind, I would simply incorporate that as being uh, a, a turning from sin in event in itself. Uh, regardless of whether that in individual displays outwardly displays a turning, uh, a change of lifestyle. Um, now, again, this is something your, uh, your extreme uh, counterparts would hold to, but uh, you don't, uh, to say that a person has a change of heart, receives 
Jesus as Lord and Savior and they are saved. Uh, can a person uh, receive Christ as Lord and Savior by name only and not showing outwardly? I, I mean, I'm sorry, um, to not have an internal change of heart. Because I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm just going with that for, for now, because I accept that as a uh, definition of repentance. But now can a, and this is a, the last point I'll ask pertaining to your uh, free, free grace perspective, and then I'll be comfortable in moving on back, uh, getting back to John 15, which is, uh, can a person not have a truly, a true change of heart and simply uh, uh, superficially declare Jesus as Lord and Savior, believing in the finished work that he accomplished in the same degree that, say, demons believe uh, and have that momentary uh, moment of, uh, of belief? Now, uh, I'm not even saying that that has to be an, an enduring belief, but momentary belief without repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind. Can a person be saved in that um, scenario? So, well, I mean, uh, now again, <laughs> there's so many things I could touch on, but man, we need to do this again because there's so much. Um, there are two, two main views. Well, maybe I should say three, maybe four views actually in free grace as to what repentance means or is it required for salvation? Now people like Bob Larkin and people like Sean Lazar and some of those guys, they don't believe repentance is required at all because it's not mentioned in the gospel of John, which is, sounds like a good argument, but actually uh, it, I think it's implied because the fact you have to change your mind about something. So you got to change your mind from unbelief, change your mind about your sin, change your mind about who Jesus is. And it, it's, it is better defined as a change of heart. So can someone, you're asking, can someone superficially do that and still be saved? Is that what you're at? Is that what you were asking? Uh, in other words, to, and I know this will be uh, edifying for some in the audience because I've, I've spoken to them. Uh, is it, do, do, do you believe a person can um, uh, be saved without a change of heart? No, no. Oh, amen. No, we no, agree on that. But how can you how can you how can you accept the Lord of the universe and mm -hmm. then not him not him not change you? Okay. So yeah, I mean it's I mean, it's it a, doesn't it, make it, any sense. Yeah, you have to he he's the one that does the changing. Now a lot, I'm not saying you do, but a lot of lordshippers will say though you gotta have the fruit to prove it, or you gotta have the fruit, you know. Uh, and that's a caveat I would add is that if you truly have the saving faith, which is founded on repentance or as you qualified, which I accepted, which is a change of heart, then that will ultimately manifest practically, you know, if that person doesn't die prematurely, um, will ultimately manifest in repentance, actual repentance. Uh, you're, you're a person who is an alcoholic will start to drink less. A person who's addicted to something else will, will, uh, you know, uh, will start to deviate from that and live more in, uh, towards a life of holiness because they have that uh, internal regeneration by the Holy Spirit. They have a regenerated conscience, a new conscience, and their conscience is seared every time they fall into sin. And so long as they hold uh, to the that state of uh, new, uh, a renewed heart, then they will always be uh, repentant, is what I would say. So I, I don't think we would really disagree much on the issue of repentance. So I'm, I'm glad we, you uh, explained yourself on that. And I, you know, thank you for that. Yeah, and, and there's a big argument and discussion over that too. That's a whole nother debate. But anyway, I just it's important to mention that. Um, so now let me ask you this. How how long do you think 
if you had to put a time frame on it, I mean, I know there's no way of knowing, so I guess this is probably just a hypothetical, okay? But how long do you think it takes for a someone's a believer? How long does it take between the abiding and the bearing the fruit? Does it take like hours, weeks, months, years to, to produce um, the fruit? Or how much abiding is required to be equivalent to a certain amount of fruit? So as I agree, agreed with you previously, it's, um, it's, uh, it's neither our place nor responsibility to be fruit inspectors. Mm -hmm. And agreed. so to answer mm -hmm. your question, I would say that uh, because a person who is saved has that genuine change of heart, which we just touched on and we both agree, then from that, they will at some point uh, produce fruit or at least have that internal uh, drive to want to produce fruit. Uh, to wit uh, witness other people, to uh, uh, to uh, convey acts of uh, charity, kindness, their neighbors, friends. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, that can, you know, uh, that's such a broad uh, range that it could manifest immediately or uh, theoretically to one's, towards the end of one's life. But, uh, you know, when we're discussing uh, my position is simply that if you have saving faith, it will, it will always be that which has the capacity to produce fruit. And not only the capacity to produce fruit, but that uh, one has an internal drive and a de desire to produce those good works. Okay, I, uh, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I actually agree yeah. with you on that. Um, so we, we actually agree more than what I thought we would. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing during debate. Yeah, I'm surprised that. Now, I'd like to try to get us to where we disagree, and I because you touched on it, and I took note of it. And Donnie, by the way, how much time is there left? Five minutes. Is it five oh. minutes? Okay. Well, um, according to my time, where we got five minutes. Wow. Okay. So uh, where we will disagree, and uh, I'm just going to bank everything um, on this then. Uh, first thing I'd like to uh, briefly uh, mention is uh, the judgment seat. Um, the judgment seat, and Donnie, if you could please share my screen, it'll, uh, this will be my PowerPoint. It's it, it shared, Merritt, but it is, um, oh, you're good now. Okay. Uh, so, John, I, I'd like to um, uh, po uh, point your direction to, to right here in, in John 5, uh, in First Peter. Uh, Peter goes to say, and again, you know, he, he's uh, the way he's touching on uh, a fiery trial, which is to, to try uh, not to count it as something strange, but to be uh, to be expected, but also to rejoice in it, that you're par partakers of Christ's suffering and that you should be happy. Now, um, then he mentions the uh, the judgment seat of Christ, uh, starting in verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God if it first begin at us. What will be the end of them that obey not the gospel, meaning that the ones who are being judged obey the gospel of God as opposed to the ones who are not saved because they don't obey the gospel of God. And then he says, if the righteous, not the works of the righteous, the righteous scarcely be saved, where will the ungodly and sinner uh, appear? Uh, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Uh, th uh, this is a saved being saved, but I, I see that as uh, conditional. You can stray from that. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Uh, again, the emphasis on the person we uh, the, the righteous uh, in verse uh, 18 
and uh, the uh, contrast in verse 17 between the saved and the unsaved. For we must all appear at the before the in Second Corinthians. Uh, it, it doubles down on this in my view. Wherefore we labor that we present our absent. We may be we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone may uh, that everyone may re receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Uh, now, um, I am arguing now that there are going there is going to be some who uh, because they forfeited the uh, path, uh, the walk of righteousness, which is to say to uh, deviate from repentance, which is also uh, equivalent to uh, forfeiting the atoning blood of Christ, that they will lose their salvation. Now, uh, can you point out an error in the way that I'm exegeting this from the text right here? That's uh, the righteous. Well, basically, uh, that's it's got a, all those verses have a, a particular uh, context there, and um, well, in, in other words. Um, is it is it unreasonable to for one to understand the meaning of righteous scarcely being saved as pertaining to the Christians as opposed to their works, their rewards? Uh, I haven't exegeted that passage particularly, so I'm, I'm not really sure what that reference is. So, uh, and again, that's a different passage, but okay. Uh, um, so I'm not sure about that honestly, but that's something maybe we could discuss at a later time but okay it's, it's fair enough uh, thank um, you for that so um, so yeah so i so honestly but but i think the, the the primary passage that i was dealing with um was in first corinthians uh chapter three donnie can we go back can i do a share are you done Merritt? i'm sorry i don't want to cut sure, it, you can put it, put it i don't I, I don't want to cut you out there i'm sorry if i did but i didn't yes I didn't, john you are shared brother okay uh again he's uh we're in this passage uh, Paul is talking, of course, to Corinthians and the Corinthians. If anybody would have done anything that you would have thought from a condition perspective would have caused them to lose your salvation, he would have or they would have done it. I mean, we had one guy sleeping with his, his mother-in-law. They were suing people, taking them to court. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were There was much division over who was better. Uh, they argued over meat that was used, if they should eat the meat that was used to demons and stuff like that. And, and all these kind of things going on, and they had a, a background of, of uh, all kinds of stuff, cultish practices before they became believers. So, And Paul is writing to them in the very same passage in 1 Corinthians 3. I don't have it pulled up, but he says basically the beginning passage of uh, chapter 3, he says, you are carnal. Now, notice, I mean, we, we only have, that's the third option. Now, Armenian would say, yeah, okay, like probably from your perspective would say you lose the salvation. A Calvinist would say the person never had salvation. I would argue these people are carnal. So there's room for being carnal and uh, it has nothing to do with the loss of salvation. In other words, they were, if you want to use the, the Baptist word backslidden, in other words, they were just living in flesh. They were doing all kinds of stuff, but he tells them that they're going to make it in verse verses 10 through uh, 14, that they will make it to the judgment seat of Christ. And it talks has to do with the gaining and losing of rewards. So do you see there in that passage that that is plainly dealing with rewards and not salvation? Uh, I'm sorry, you said verse uh, 10 to 14? Uh, yes. Oh, uh, yes. Um, the, the, that is, yes, most definitely pertaining to, uh, to the, to the uh, works. And oh, there's Tom. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's pertaining to to works and rewards. Yes. Oh, okay, but, but I would uh, I would say that there there are examples uh, throughout the New Testament of uh, those who had uh, abandoned their faith and and uh, but but I mean but we'll touch on that some other time. Okay, we'll do it again sometime. We can we have more time. It's just you can't hit everything. I mean, it's just impossible. But I think I sense a round two at some point in the future between John and Merritt. Gentlemen, I appreciate the cordial discussion, the very scholarly discussion. You both came with visuals. You came prepared. And so I do appreciate the uh, time that you've given to us for not only the debate, but also for the prep and work that is, is put into these debates especially to make a good memorable one. So easy to moderate. I have uh, saved quite a few excellent questions um, to people in the chat asking if I've got their questions. Yes, I'm all caught up. We've got more than enough questions that are going to uh, take up the 25 minute audience Q&A portion. On this channel, we have such a great audience and so many questions always come in that we are only ever able to get to a fraction of them. And so I, I like to apologize ahead of time if I do miss your question. So we still do, uh, John and Merritt, have closing statements. Five minutes, we can wrap up our thoughts and points, especially because there was just so much discussed in the in the discussion itself. Morph Wales says, it'd be great to see around two awesome debates. So lots of good feedback and uh, just a lot of good input from the chat, Merritt and John. So we're going to start with Merritt. You get the first five minute closing statement. Uh, whenever you're ready, my good man, let me know and I'll start your timer. Thank you. Uh, can you please share my screen again? Yes, you're shared. Okay. Um, to the members of the audience, I apologize that we didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, we didn't touch on this further. I, I was. I thought John and I disagreed on the nature of um, of fruits. Uh, 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 fruits versus uh, that which produces fruit, uh, saving faith. But we. It turned out we agreed more uh, than I pre that I had initially thought. Uh, and so, if I had known that, I would have uh, tried to press more on uh, the issue here, which. Uh, uh, I'd like for John to uh, address. Now, John has already said that uh, there is no um, uh, there is no other example of a burning of anything that is uh, that is uh, analogical to uh, a Christian, uh, a believer, and that through that burning, by means of a gathering, that they are made better. And I would say that makes every sense in the world because when you burn something. Uh, that is destroyed by that which burns, then um, that denotes destruction. And Jesus says that uh, narrow is the way to life and few be that find it. Uh, and that broad is the way to destruction. And so from Jesus' own mouth, we have the contrast between destruction and eternal life. And so when he gives the example from John 15, which is what this debate is about, uh, and I look forward to speaking with John again about uh, John 15 and other passages. We have every reason. In other words, I didn't get anything from our discussion here tonight to call into question uh, my the, the, the way in which I connected John 15 to the parable of the wheat and tares, to the separation of the sheep and goats, 
uh, as outlined later on in the latter portion of the book of Matthew. Now, uh, to touch on uh, chastening, because uh, John uh, uh, touched on this, uh, which is that he, he's, he's saying that uh, uh, the, the example about Esau was from the old covenant and all of that. Um, my, my contention is that this is clearly an example of one uh, that the example of Esau forfeiting his birthright it is an example of one forfeiting their salvation through the uh, the tribulations that they experience in this life, which is largely conflated with um, chastening, divine discipline, because it has the word grace. And um, as I said in my opening, you will not find this word anywhere in canon scripture being associated with works, rewards, always to uh salvation namely the initial justification of a person upon believing jesus uh, as lord and savior which by the way is, is a, a saving faith that is founded on repentance and so because you will not find that work uh, the word grace elsewhere here on the screen and also that uh, uh that it is used in the context of of uh judgment day christ's return as indicated by the um oh goodness i had the wrong slide up unbelievable i'm sorry uh, that's a fail that is a fail i'm sorry about that uh, when i'm under these conditions i have, I have this severe anxiety and, and i start to lose uh, my train of thought i didn't even notice that my screen wasn't even on the right slide uh I apologize about that, uh, but um, uh, that um, it's a forfeiture of salvation in Hebrews chapter 12. And also where uh, where John and I, uh, how much time, Donnie? Good question. You've got uh, you got just a minute left. OK. And. Uh, so to consign the warning in John 15 to chase to divine chastening, you're simply, as I said in my opening, pushing the can of worms about losing salvation further down the road. Uh, I mean, that's indicated in, in the text. Uh, and my challenge, again, is on, in, uh, on predicated on the word grace there, charitas. You will not find that anywhere. Now, John has admitted that there is no other example of uh, burning by means of a gathering, and then the individuals being made better by that burning in spite of the fact that the burning is meant to denote and does denote destruction. So I take that as concession uh, in uh, my uh, interpretation of connecting John 15 to Matthew 24, the other parables about the gathering and a burning to be validated. Uh, but I'm open to uh, other suggestions and I look forward to speaking to John more about this in the future. Uh, so that's really, um, uh, all I have at the moment, um, let me see. And um, uh, and again, in, in Matthew uh, 24, when he, and in 25, I'm sorry, I, I'm all over the place. I'm, I might as well just take this down. Um, thanks, Tony, you, you, you take that. I'm, I'm sorry about the, I had the wrong slides up. No worries, well, Merritt. Yeah, I'll, I'll just conclude on that. Okay. Well, Merritt, okay. I appreciate that concluding statement. I appreciate the uh, attitudes uh, from you both 
for uh, tonight's debate. It was a very respectful approach, and I enjoyed the, the intelligent back and forth. So, Merritt, I appreciate that concluding statement. John, we've got you now for five minutes, and whenever you're ready, you've got your concluding statement. Go ahead. All right. Thank you very much. Donnie, appreciate it. Thank you, Merritt, for coming on here. I appreciate it a whole lot. Um, we actually did uh, agree on more points than what I thought we would, too. So that was a little unusual for a debate like this. Most of the time, you usually disagree with pretty much 100% or, uh, you know, or even less than that. But we, we hit on some points we agreed on. Uh, maybe we could just do another one, another debate, another discussion, and another time on eternal security or some of these relevant passages that he brought up. Um, I kind of wish we would have stuck more to John 15 verses one through six, but tried to stay within that context. But there's so many other verses and you get tempted to talk about other verses and you don't have enough time. And it's so anyway, but hopefully something enough was said about John 15 to give uh, credibility uh, to um, my uh, stance on that. Um, one thing um, I did not hear that uh, to my satisfaction was the word abide, the word abide is not salvific. And I think I've already proved that uh, merit. Uh, and I don't say it to be disrespectful, but he did not give me a, a satisfactory answer, a sufficient answer about abide. Abide, as I have demonstrated, does not mean salvation. It doesn't say anything about justification by faith, regeneration, born again. Jesus could have easily used the term that he did in John 3. You must be born again, or you must believe, or you must have faith. He didn't use those words. Uh, he says, you're already in me, therefore, because you're already in me, therefore, you should continue on in fellowship. Now, I did not get a chance to ask Merritt um, if he believes there is a distinction between salvation and discipleship. I mentioned that. I get the feeling maybe he maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm not really sure, but that's another discussion. But I just felt like that was not sufficient um, as far as abide. I don't believe it's salvific at all. Also, the reference to fire in verse 6 is not a reference to hell. The Greek word Hades is not used. Gehenna is not used. It doesn't talk about the great white throne judgment or anyone being cast in the, in the lake of fire. To reiterate, it does not say angels are casting anyone to the lake of fire. It is that say God the Father from the great white throne is casting anyone into the lake of fire whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life as mentioned uh, in the great white throne judgment. So I, I don't feel like that was necessarily satisfactory there. Um, and um, he's talking to disciples, the 11 disciples, uh, to them and about them having a deeper fellowship with him because of the fact they were already in him. They didn't need to get in him again and again and again, or do anything to rem to remain their salvation. They are to abide in him or remain or continue in their discipleship. You see, I don't know if, if Merritt fully understands that or not. Uh, maybe he does, but that's another time we can topic we can get into, like I said. But he's talking about discipleship is fellowship. He's talking about uh, sanctification. He might have mentioned briefly a little bit about that. But the point is, uh, to abide in Jesus is, is to let him live. He lives in us. He produces the fruit through us when we simply abide or depend on him. Now, we didn't get into a discussion about what the fruit is. There's just so many things we missed. The fruit there, of course, is talking about loving one another. It's talking about uh, witnessing to uh, the lost, because that's exactly what they were going to do based on Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. If you study um, the context of those that were go out, uh, supposed to go into all the world and share the gospel, and then Jesus talks about them going into uh, the uttermost parts of the earth, into Samaria and other places and sharing the gospel. So that's part of their fruit as well, loving one another. Um, I also 
uh, think that he misunderstands Daniel 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which is an eschatological passage. It deals with end times. Uh, it deals with Old Testament saints and tribulation saints that will be resurrected at the second coming of Christ when he comes back to earth after the seven-year tribulation. Um, and also, um, again, he, he brought up Matthew 24. Uh, that deals with the sheep and goat nations. That doesn't deal with the church because the church has already come back with Christ, Matthew uh, 24 is uh, is when Jesus comes back the second time. Revelation 19 mentions that, and it talks about the saints wearing white because they've already been judged previously at the great white throne judgment. They'll be coming back with Christ to the earth uh, to reign and rule a thousand years. So that uh, that's the context of that passage. And the sheep and goat nations uh, do not deal with works. It deals with people. Uh, basically, the sheep, uh, they are talking about the Gentiles and how they treated um the Gentiles, rather, the sheep sheep and goat nations, and the goats would actually be the Gentiles and some of them that are unsaved, and the sheep would be Israel in that passage. But again, that's a whole other discussion. But I think he took that out of context as well, maybe didn't fully understand uh, what that's talking about. But to abide in Christ means to stay in fellowship with him, to remain in him, so he can produce the fruit through you as a believer. And my time's up. John, thank you so much for... The closing statement, Merritt and John, that concludes the openings, the rebuttals, the discussion, and the closing. So again, fantastic debate. I'll give you both a minute or two break right here before the audience questions as I go through just some reminders and some announcements, guys. So uh, it's been a solid 2023 so far. We've been doing, on average, about four debates a week. And uh, this week is a solid mix of creation, evolution, and soteriology topics. Uh, seems to be a couple of uh, the topics that people love the most. And so we kick-started the week with Evolution on Trial, Dr. Dino versus Fox Official. That debate was definitely a ton of fun. I engaged in a debate, podcast debate, which by the way, it is now up, which I just posted the link for in the live chat on our podcast website. So you can find us over on uh, Spotify, Apple, and all of your other Google podcasts and, and a couple others. So this one is now uploaded there, but we did do it live on YouTube. And so this one was, uh, is genetic entropy a legitimate problem for evolution? Myself and Taylor definitely had a lot of fun with that one. Of course, tonight, which Merritt and John Crawford did not let us down. And I appreciate it, gentlemen. What is the proper understanding of John 15? I predict we will be uh, doing a round two between John and Merritt at some point in the future. Then tomorrow, Saturday night, Soteriology Showdown. Travis Thomas, Charles Jennings, both of these gentlemen have a lot of experience in the uh, on the debate scene in the debate octagon. Uh, they both had a uh, have had a ton of debates on this specific topic, so I am definitely looking forward to this. I know there's been a lot of hype for this, so tomorrow night it'll be at uh, either eight or nine. EST. I encourage people to double check the live stream section. Lordship salvation versus free grace theology. What is true biblical salvation? Then as we usually do, we've got Sunday off and then we're back here Monday. Turretin fan, Eli Haytov, soteriology debate. 
Again, lots of, uh, lots of great debates on the topic of salvation. What is true biblical salvation? And the week continues with another four debates. And so the very next day, another much-anticipated debate, specifically on dispensationalism. We've got Pastor Matt First here, Pastor Anthony Aquino. Both of these uh, pastors really know their stuff on this topic. It's definitely going to be a very professional, it's, it's going to be a great debate. So the specific question is, who are God's chosen people? So that one will be on, on Tuesday, and we've rescheduled, so this one will be next week as well. Kent Hoven, Christian Dean, this one is a continuation in the Evolution Debate Challenge series. And so this will be specifically uh, the question, is there good evidence for evolution? And that's just a snapshot of the overall um, material that we have for you and the overall uh, debates that we have scheduled in the future. So John, Merritt, break time is over for you, brothers. So we're going to get right into these questions. And why don't we start right at the beginning? So question comes in from Morph Wales. And this question is for you, Merritt. Question for Merritt. How does he, from his position, explain 1 Corinthians 3.15? If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Merritt, just make sure to unmute and go. Thank you for the question, uh, Morph Wales. <clears throat> So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 15. All right. Now, uh, this verse is to be understood. I understand the free grace position uh, holds to this as being an um, emphatic declaration of one's salvific status to the, uh, all the way to the uh, judgment seat of Christ. However, you have to understand that this entire passage here about uh, the quality of the works of a Christian is speaking on the predication of those who endure to the end in their faith, but they have different, uh, they have varying qualities of work, some of which uh, stand the test of time, the, the test of fire, and others that uh, burn up easily, in which case they will suffer loss. And right from within this uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you read further down, it says that, um, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. And that word destroy in the Greek is associated always with eternal destruction uh, in the context of salvation and judgment. Now, um, you can, um, uh, where John and I disagree, uh, where, which we didn't get to touch on uh, much is whether or not one can lose their salvation on the walk of uh, sanctification. And my position is obviously obviously that you can. Um, and where, uh, where John and I came into this debate with a lot of our presuppositions founded on other passages, um, where, well, that's getting slightly off topic, but uh, more, Wales, I hope that answered your question, um, it, which is that this is not a guarantee that a Christian, that all Christians will endure to the end, but simply reflecting on how uh, an enduring Christian's work is judged at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, where else, it, it, elsewhere it's um, 
explicitly stated, as I brought up earlier, about how the righteous are scarcely saved, which in the Greek means with great difficulty. And that's uh, in contrast to the unsaved people. And so if it were the case that all Christians remain saved after initial justification, there would be no value in giving a contrast between an unsaved person versus one who could, couldn't possibly forfeit their salvation. And so I, I hope that helps. Yes, Merritt, I appreciate the response to this question. John, floor is yours. Uh, again, yes, of course, I stand um, strong on what I said about this. So this passage, obviously Jesus, and uh, most scholars attest to this, he's talking about the great, the uh, not great white throne, the judgment seat, which takes place after the uh, rapture. And the people there, he's talked about enduring to the end. It makes it sound like it's works-based that we have to have some kind of synergism to keep our salvation and monergism, which those words are made up. They're not necessarily biblical. Uh, Christ is the one that keeps our salvation uh, intact. We are sealed until the day of redemption, not until the day of reprobation or to the day of falling away or whatever you want to call it. And so we make it to the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why he says there that they're being judged for works or else there'd be no point in, in I mean, if works are keep you from, from uh, having salvation, then he doesn't mention it here in this passage about specifically about you will lose your salvation. He said it's a loss of reward, not a loss of salvation, because the believers will already be in heaven standing before Christ, getting judged according to their works, not according to salvation. So that's still my, my stance on that. Okay, John, thank you so much. Uh, Mary, you get the last word. It's your question. Go ahead. Oh, Mary, I think you're on mute. I'm sorry. Um, it's, um, uh, I, I think uh, I, I'm not sure I can uh, answer better than uh, I did earlier, but uh, I appreciate John's response. Okay. Thank you very much there, Merritt. Next question comes in from Jacob and Jacob's got a question for both. And so his question is, is the implication here that if we understand this passage, we can be excused for not doing what God says? Isn't that what sin is? I guess the implication from tonight's verse in question, John 15. Uh, Merritt started with the previous question. John, why don't we start with you for this one? God doesn't excuse sin on any level, whether it's unbelievers or believers. We're all accountable to God. That's why we have the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers in Revelation chapter 20. I just did a video on that, by the way, on my channel. Go watch it. Um, and also the judgment seat, of course, we will be judged. Now, some believe, people believe that it's just talking about useless works. In other words, are worthless, not necessarily sin, because it says we'll be judged whether things done in the body, whether good or bad. Although the word bad there is not necessarily doesn't use the word for sin, but it, it does, it can be translated, depending on how it's translated, it can be translated bad there, you know, as obviously can refer to sin. If you do something bad, it's obviously going to be sinful. So no, God doesn't excuse sin at all. That's why he died on the cross, uh, you know, uh, and it put him on a cross. So he doesn't excuse sin. And for the, for the believer, we are going to be held accountable to God, even though we are eternally secure and there is chastisement for the believer. As I mentioned that about, it can be physical death. It can be a loss of joy. It'd be a loss of sense of peace. It can be a loss of fellowship. It can be a loss of boldness in prayer boldness and witnessing 
and all those things. So there are things that will be lost. So therefore we are accountable. It's not like we can just get saved and there's no more accountability and we can just go out here and have a free ride and get a free pass to do what we want. That's a straw man. When people say that, when they attack free grace, we don't teach that when you're saved, you have God's grace and you should want to live in accordance to the grace you already have because God has given it to you. Therefore it's a free gift. You accept it. He paid it all. There's no works as far as getting it or keeping it, but we're responsible and should have good works. But when we don't, we are accountable to God. So God does not excuse sin. Thank you, John. Jacob, appreciate the question. Merritt, floor is yours. Uh, Jacob, thank you for the, for the question. Um, the, the question of whether or not we are excused uh, is it, it all depends on whether or not uh, the sin that's committed is, is done with a repentant heart. And I know that sounds oxymoronic at first, but what I mean by that is if a person is regenerate and they fall, uh, they fall to sin uh, every now and again, uh, they are stricken by their conscience and they are, as a result, in most cases, I suspect, uh, chastened for that. However, where John and I disagree is that you can uh, deviate to the point where um, you forfeit your salvation and therefore because you are no longer abiding in Jesus, the vine, you are there, uh, thereafter incapable of producing any more good works, fruit. And that's why in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus um, condemns uh, the goats for not uh, for, for a lack of good works uh, when he says, uh, for I was hungered, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me, uh, uh, you didn't give me drink. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And then he tells them, uh, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. Now notice he doesn't say here, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the debate, uh, that he doesn't declare, I never knew you like he does in Matthew seven, but rather he condemns the work that they uh, he condemns them for not manifesting that work. Well, you say, well, logically, well, if they were saved and fell away, wouldn't that by my own logic mean that they had produced good work at some point? Then shouldn't that count? Well, in, um, uh, in, in uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 18, 24, it reads, but when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth, committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? Now you say, well, that pertains to um, uh, to uh, temporal judgment. Well, not necessarily. Uh, in all his righteousness that he had, he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he has trespassed, trespassed, and in his sins that sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. It's saying here they'll die in their sin. Now, obviously, this isn't some random sin. It's the uh, sin of apostasy from the heart. And that's why any fruit that they had pr produced previously will not be counted in their favor. Um, and so I, I hope that answers your question, Jacob. Uh, thanks again for, uh, uh, for reaching out. Merritt and John, appreciate your responses. That wraps up that specific question. So the next question comes in from centurion and you know what this might be the same as let me just double check first corinthians 3 15 first well i guess it is a different verse let's see um let's work through it so centurion appreciate the question for merit can you apply your position in exegete first corinthians 5 
one to five. Is this person still saved and therefore going to heaven or did he lose his salvation? First Corinthians chapter five, yeah, one to five. Oh, I, uh, okay. Uh, deliver such one and see for destruction of the flesh. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is a, a a passage that's that's commonly used to argue the idea that there will always be a provisional line uh, about which God will not allow a Christian to pass. And what you have to understand about this passage is that the very prayer from, uh, in this case, Paul, the very fact that he is wishing. Uh, that God may take him early is a gesture of mercy to allow him to die better than to have them risk losing their uh, forfeiting their salvation uh, is it has eternal ramifications. And so this isn't um, this this is not meant to to convey the idea that all Christians will uh, suffer physical death if they live uh if they embark on a lifestyle of severe sin and depravity uh but rather that you could be taken early as a uh, uh as a, uh, a gesture of mercy and have your soul preserved and the very fact that uh it says here in the text that uh that this person's spirit may be preserved uh in the day of in other words, in the judgment seat of Christ, uh, indicates that his soul was in jeopardy or would be would have been in jeopardy if he had been allowed to continue living in that sinful lifestyle. Uh, so um, that that's all I have to say about that. I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much, Merit uh, Centurion. Great question. John, the floor is yours now. Okay, great. Well, actually, I think it's eternal, it screams the eternal security because... The passage, just an observation from a cursory reading, it plainly tells you to deliver such one uh, unto Satan for the destruction of what? Not the spirit, the flesh. So he's talking about temporal judgment right there. Again, as we're talking about in verse 6. So someone can live in such a way that they don't respond to God as a believer. And again, like I said, there's chastisement. There is a loss, a loss of physical life. We see that with Ananias and Sapphira. We saw it with the Corinthians when they were getting drunk at the Lord's church. Some of them were falling asleep, which is a metaphor for dying. Uh, so that, that, that happened in the scriptures. And literally in the Old Testament, God would sometimes swallow people up in the, I believe it was uh, the sons of Korah, I believe swallow, you know, swallowed them up in the, in the ground, literally. So there's, there's judgments that happen. There's physical death that happens as a result of sin. And, but this context here where it says that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So I do believe that is a reference to eternal security because else, if, it, if you could lose it, why does it not say destruction also by the spirit? It doesn't. It distinguishes between the destruction of the flesh and the saving of the spirit. John, appreciate it. Merritt, question was for you. You get the last word. Uh, just a quick response to uh, uh, on the topic of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, that was brought up earlier in the, the debate as well. Uh, I, I see their uh, infliction as being a loss of salvation because they had committed the unpardonable sin. They had lied to the Holy Spirit, uh, whom they know could not 
be deceived. Now, um, it, we know that the offense that they committed was against the Holy Spirit. Uh, we also know from Scripture that uh, sin against the Holy Spirit is unpardonable in this age or the age to come after. We also know that unbelievers who uh, reject the gospel with volition, uh, having that mental assent, also commit uh, the same offense uh, as uh, Jesus warned those who were uh, deliberately claiming his good works to be works of Satan. So if Ananias and Sapphira uh, were, say, false converts, then they would have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit long before that point. They were part of the uh, congregation, and they didn't suffer uh, that um, uh, that punishment until they committed that act against the Holy Spirit. So if we use Scripture to to interpret Scripture, well, Scripture says that sin against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven, and yet they committed that act. And to say that they died a temporal punishment, you'd have no scriptural backing for it. And so... Um, uh, so that's the reason why I take that to be uh, Ananias and Sapphira to be examples of a salvific loss. Okay, Merritt, thank you so much. And you were elaborating on the previous question. So let's get to the next one from Echoing Erudite. Appreciate the question there, brother. Question for both. Faith without works is dead. Does this refer to our lives and works or to the work Jesus did on the cross because only Jesus could do that necessary or needed work? Uh, Merritt, let's start with you uh, this time and then um, we'll go from there. Merritt, go ahead. Uh, this, this verse from James 2 indicates to me that in order to have a saving faith, it's always going to be that be that which produces uh, good works, and it uses um, uh, 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 Abraham as an as an example, and the emphasis is on the faith that what he did physically in his willingness to offer his only son to God, thinking that God really did want him to to offer his son as, as you know a burnt offering, showed that his faith had been completed to the point his loyalty to God had reached the point where he could no longer fall away. As it stated uh, uh, in scripture, Jesus prayed for the apostle Peter that uh, his faith would not fail. And he uh, encourages him saying that once you are converted, strengthen your brothers. And so without works, you can categorically say that that person doesn't have a saving faith. Uh, and the work that Jesus did on the cross in, in no way is undermined by the idea that one can give up their salvation because the finished work of Christ is the atoning, the atonement, the, 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 um, uh, the, the atoning work that his, uh, the shedding of his blood accomplished where we could not accomplish. And so, so uh, because it's on our responsibility to uh, receive his blood uh, and to receive the imputation of his righteousness, so too can we by own, our own free will choice make the decision to give that up at some point in the future. And, uh, and of course, uh, we have examples in scripture about those who have forfeited, uh, turned their backs, backs on the faith, uh, which Sean and I didn't get into much, but you know, like, like I said, hopefully we'll talk about it more. 
Thank you for the question. And thank you for the response, Merritt. John, over to you for uh, your response. That's a very controversial passage, and there's much we could talk about that. But, of course, Jesus either did all the work on the cross or he didn't do enough. So the question to, to think about is this. Either Jesus paid for all my sins, past, present, and future, and I've got to add to that, it would be heresy. It's damnable heresy to say that I've got to add my own works to that to stay saved or to get saved. And it sounds like maybe that's what where merit's coming from, and uh, that's not what the scriptures teach. And this passage here, of course, uh, or to address the question here, the Bible says that Jesus to telestai it is finished. There was no more to add to it, nothing to take away from it. And to say that we have to do good works to prove we're saved or to keep our salvation is basically teaching a works based salvation, and it's heresy. Uh, salvation is a free gift that we receive by faith alone. We don't add any works to it, any any works before, during, and or after it. Uh, now, this issue of, of faith and that works is dead. He wasn't saying that their salvation was dead. Notice the passage anywhere never says that. He was saying that, and he was writing to them, they're already believers, and there's temporal judgment that they will face at the judgment seat of Christ in those passages, if you look at all that, it talks about, uh, I think, three, maybe four other references talk about physical death as a result of not um, having good works. And he gives a demonstration of being able to provide food and clothes and stuff like that and doing good works. In other words, live out your faith. But he's not saying that you were never saved to begin with. Dead there just, it just means it's inactive. In other words, you're not living out your discipleship is what he's talking about. John, thank you so much for the response. That was a question for both. So let's move right on to the next question. And the next, uh, next question comes in from um, another one for both. Stephen Brown, question SFT to both. Is abiding talking to the body, as in the church as a whole, or the individual believer? Is there a scripture indicating your answer? So... Uh, Merritt started with the last one. John, why don't we start with you, brother? Okay, she's asking the, the abiding there pertaining to in John 15. Well, in the context, he's talking to the disciples as a whole, the all 11, because Judas had left. So he's talking to the disciples and about the disciples in the context. Now, the application applies to the applies, the application. See, there's a difference in interpretation and application. Interpretation is what's being said in the context, and you look for how it applies uh, to us as believers today, so it can be applied. Now, first John tells us we ought to walk as he as he walked, or to, to abide in him, and he's talking about uh, fellowship. We're to have fellowship with Christ, and First John talks about that. If you read that, uh, about uh, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. In uh, First John four, I believe it is. Therefore, we're to walk in the light as He is in the light. Stuff like that. So it's talking about fellowship. So when we walk in the Spirit, we're in fellowship with Him. When we don't, we walk in darkness, meaning we're out of fellowship with Him. So to abide in Him means that we're to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians talks about that. Uh, we're to be walking in the Spirit. We're to be doing good works. We're to be zealous for good works. And so abiding is the byproduct of that. It, pro it produces all of that. So it applies to the church as a, whole, to, as, a, as a whole that we're to be living out the fact we're abiding in Christ. John, appreciate it. Merritt, you get the last, or well, it's a question for both, so you get to um, give your response. Go ahead. 
Uh, Stephen, thank you very much for your question. Uh, uh, that I can agree with John as well, uh, that it does have a, um, it does pertain to the church, but uh, the immediate application is on the individual. And this is where in First John, uh, we are told to uh, let the gospel remain in us. Uh, the same sentiment is echoed in Romans 11 about continuing in his love. Jesus says, uh, if ye love me, uh, I'm sorry, if ye keep my commandments, uh, you will continue uh, in my love, just as I have kept uh, my father's commandments and I abide in his love. So, yes, absolutely. It pertains uh, on an individual level. Uh, and, and that, in turn, has an effect at the corporate level on the church. Um, so, so, um, uh, but, but even if you take a, uh, if you take a, uh, a warning passage to pertain to the church, I wouldn't, uh, so, uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, easily, I, I wouldn't so quickly dismiss that as having any application to the individual level. Uh, always better safe than sorry is, is my approach. Uh, but, um, I hope that answers your, your question. Um, definitely pertains to the individual. Okay. Merritt and John, thank you for your response to that. We are winding down. We're coming up at the 25 minutes for the, for the Q and a. And so let's start to wrap it up. Here's a question with, uh, from Nakia Boyer. Thank you so much as always questions for John. Can a saved person be possessed? If so, what do you make of, and he did send in a correction, what do you make of Luke 11, 25 to 26 specifically? Uh, no, a, a born-again Christian cannot be demon-possessed. Um, you cannot have the Holy Spirit and a demon residing in the same person at the same time in the same sense. In fact, it violates the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same sense, which is to say something can't both be true and false at the same time. It can't be both be true that I am possessed or I have the Holy Spirit residing in me and also I have a demon living in me too. Uh, so now his reference to Luke eleven twenty five. I don't have uh, I don't have that pulled up. I don't know, Donnie, if you could pull it up, or can I look that up real quick here? Uh, let me. Uh, I'll look it up too, and then we can read it over together. So Luke eleven. Let's see, Luke eleven. So it looks like uh, Luke eleven twenty five to twenty six. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Okay. Well, that passage, of course, is obviously talking about someone that's not regenerate. Again, uh, I don't know anywhere in scripture it says a safe person it defines a safe person as a demon being able to do that to a person's spirit on the inside. A person can be oppressed, but they cannot be possessed. And if you're not saved and you're lost, you are a, quote, possession of the devil. Uh, we tend to think about possession as something like The Exorcist, that movie that came out in the 70s with the girl's head spinning around, spitting up pea soup everywhere. Uh, <laughs> but that's not always, not even the case. That's Hollywood's. But that passage there 
is uh, not referring to Christians. It's referring to someone that's not saved because if, an, if a believer cannot be possessed, it's referring to somebody that gets possessed and more demons come and possess them. And plus, when Jesus comes on the scene, he always cast out demons. Okay, thank you, John. Merritt, floor is yours if there's anything you'd like to add. Uh, Nakia, thank you for the question. I would say no, absolutely not. A person in a, in a state of salvation, in a state of regeneration, cannot have a, uh, I agree with John, it's uh, mutually exclusive. Either you have the Holy Spirit or you have a, uh, an evil demon. Now, uh, a caveat that I would like to add to that is that obviously I believe you can uh, choose to forfeit the, your fellowship with the Holy Spirit and receive a demon uh, some point on afterwards. Uh, a, uh, a little trivia that I'll add to because to, uh, this person is obviously interested in, in, on this topic. In the, um, in the late, uh, I'm sorry, early uh, 18th century, um, the, there was a, um, a young woman uh, living here in the United States in the, uh, uh, one of the original 13 colonies. Uh, she was a regular church-going person, and um, uh, this is according to her story, and there's no, uh, there's no opposition to her claims, by the way. No, no one doubts her claims. Uh, it was also witnessed by third-party observers. Uh, she was uh, in church on one Sunday morning, and she saw an apparition of her deceased uh, uncle. And he was reaching out for help, asking her if she would help. And so uh, she she extended her hand and, and offered him, him help. And what occurred immediately afterward was she became deaf, dumb, and blind for, I think, uh, several months. And they hired many uh, Protestant uh, exorcists to try to uh, cure her condition, but uh, to no avail. Uh, ironically, they uh, resorted to hiring a Catholic priest who managed to get the demon out. Now, uh, what I wanted you to take away from this story is uh, the, uh, the, the fact that she had to consent to receiving him, this spiritual entity, whatever that, whoever that was, in order to be possessed. So that shows uh, volition on the part of the individual uh, they can't forcefully enter in, but you can invite them in, uh, much to your own detriment. Uh, but in this, in the case of this young woman, she um, was deceived. Uh, after she was cured, she lived a, you know, a, a regular life out of the spotlight. So, but hope that helps. Thank you very much, Merritt. John, question was for you. You get the last word. Well, I think I pretty much addressed it. I don't think there's anything else I can add to it at this point, Donnie. But Thank you. Okay, John. Well, uh, gentlemen, that wraps up the uh, Q&A. Again, excellent debate. Very cordial. I appreciate all the work you both put into this. Uh, let me just put this up real quick. Last minute super chat. Jacob, thank you so much uh, for the support. And again, to the audience in general i appreciate all the feedback all the input and all of the questions we always get a lot of uh, a lot of great questions and feedback in these important debates so jacob says we will finally get to see billions of years in heaven atheist got it backward that's a good point brother and that's a good way to uh, wrap things up so thank you so much uh john Merritt, again thank you for your time tonight let's get some final words final thoughts John, why don't we start with you, brother? Again, great to have you here on the show. Always a pleasure. 
Final words, final thoughts? Well, thank you, Donnie. This is always fun. I enjoy debating. Um, I, of course, I love to argue and I love the Bible. So, you know, what what a great combination, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, I enjoy these. I think they're I think they can be uplifting when they're cordial, when they're peaceful. Sometimes, of course, these things can turn adversarial, which is never good. Uh, but the idea is to be able to just put the arguments out there uh, for each view. And as I said at the beginning of the show, let people determine what they believe based on what's said and examine the evidence. And I'll even say this. Don't take my word for it. See it for yourself. Look, take the evidence, take what I've said, compare it to scripture, take the arguments, the word studies, the, the exegesis, and you see what you think about it. Same way with uh, merit. Same way. Don't take his word for it. See it for yourself. So I, I would just say that. And uh, it's just been an honor to be here. I think this is my third debate, so I'm three now. So, uh, Donnie, I'm sure uh, you'll have some more lined up for me coming up later on in the future. I look forward to that. Merritt, I want to thank you for coming on and taking the time uh, to have this uh, friendly discussion and debate. It's been uh, very enlightening to me, enriching, and uh, challenging as well. So, so I appreciate your time, and thank you. Thank you guys both. My pleasure, John. Appreciate those final words. And yes, John, I will keep you very busy in 2023. I'll keep you both busy. We're doing our best to top 2022. And we had a lot of debates in 2022. So we got our work cut out for us. But that's what we have this amazing community uh, here for. And so anybody in the audience, anybody who's new to this channel, and you would love to step into the debate octagon, whether it's on soteriology, creation, evolution, nature of God, whatever your favorite topic is, shoot, shoot me an email, standingfortruthministries at gmail.com, and I will do my best to set you up with an appropriate interlocutor on a topic of your choice. So Merritt, good to uh, again have you. It's always a pleasure. You always make for good debates. Tonight was a great debate. And so some final words and final thoughts. Thank you very much, Donnie, for hosting this. Thank you again, uh, Mr. Crawford, for uh, taking the time out uh, for this debate. I too have found this to be a, an enlightening and challenging experience, um, uh, all to the glory of God. Um, and most of all, thank you to the audience members uh, who are watching this. I hope this has been uh, edifying to you. And um, um, I did the best I could under the circumstances um, uh, but um, if there's anything that troubles your faith uh, at all, uh, I encourage you to reach out and to, to reach out to anybody in this uh, community. You will find the help that you need. I did. And um, uh, as a former free gracer, you know, I, um, uh, I understand the issue better than before now. Uh, I'm not what you would call an extreme Armenian. I happen to believe that uh, one saved, always saved. Uh, is a reality that applies on a limited basis, depending on the degree of uh, circumstances that the individual came out of when that person got saved. Unfortunately, on a typical um, standpoint, if a person is saved young, probably uh, that person hasn't endured uh, their so-called hour of temptation. And so uh, that will come afterwards. Unfortunately, my heart tells me I'm not of that group uh, who whose faith will not be challenged after regeneration. And I ask for prayers all the time. Uh, and every one of these interactions, these debates uh, have been very helpful to me in my walk of faith. Uh, 
and I agree with John, you know, don't take any of our words uh, for face value, you know, take the time to uh, investigate for yourself. And I hope that we, um, we uh, met that uh, task tonight. And so I want to thank all of you for watching again. Thanks to you, Donnie, for hosting. And I thank you again, John, for participating in this debate. Well, my pleasure, uh, Merritt. Again, excellent debate tonight. Audience was great as well with so much, so many good questions that have come in. I look forward to hosting the both of you again in the future. Real quick, shout out to the Layman Seminary. He does have an after show where apparently he's going to go through the debate and just kind of have some discussion. And so anybody is welcome over at uh, the channel, uh, the Layman Seminary, Charles Jennings. And so that reminds me, this was uh, the first, one could say, of a, uh, a few days worth of soteriology showdowns. And so tomorrow we will be back here roughly the same time. Charles Jennings and Travis Thomas, definitely going to be an exciting one. Lordship Salvation versus Free Grace Theology. What is true biblical salvation? And then first thing on Monday... We've got Turretin Fan and Eli Haytov. And again, same topic, Lordship Salvation versus Free Grace Theology. What is true biblical salvation? And so with that, again, to the debaters, I really appreciate your time. And I appreciate you guys giving us a debate to remember specifically on what is the true meaning of John 15. To the audience, thank you so much for tuning in. Standing for Truth is out. God bless all.